Everybody compares themselves to SEALs. SEALs don't compare themselves to anybody else. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. Thank you guys for listening and watching, and please don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button if you like what you see. So let's get to our weekly Patreon question of the day. And today we have, if you had to choose one, are you more of a sports guy or a movie buff? You have to choose one. I feel like those change. Movies. For sure. Yeah, I'm going to go with movies because you can watch movies about sports. <laughs> Way to get around that. Yeah, I'm not to go with movies That's because that's all we do. We didn't have access to all the sports, but we did have access to all the movies. Movie buff just because I hate sports. You don't like sports? <laughs> hate sports with a passion. God, I love sports, man. I hate them. watch them all day, but... I cannot fathom we're paying dudes millions and millions of dollars to do that. That's insane to me. God bless America. But my dad, my brothers, all they did was watch sports. I was a little five-year-old kid. All I wanted to do was watch Gilligan's Islands and cartoons, and they were watching sports, man. So I grew up hating sports because of that. <laughs> so I have problems watching a game that Hate I've watched them. before. Like if I know who's going to win it. Well, yeah. But I'll watch the same movie I've watched over and over again. You know why you do that? Tell me. Because there's some security in knowing the end. You don't have, to, don't you don't have to really think about it. You don't have to really. Like watching the but same you sports. enjoy the movie. The, the, the movie ties you in. The sport, There's some yeah. sort of storyline. Speaking There's of. There's emotional attachment emotional to the movie. Emotional damage. No, emotional attachment <laughs> to the movie. Marcus actually has, I call it the movie quote language. He knows what it is. So is every team guy, man. Everybody. I do that. People look at me it. like, what? Don't scare the normal people, Randy. He speaks you know? in movie quotes. But we understand that. Though. Yeah. I guess it's a sport, too, because if football's on and boxing, if I can watch fights all day. I'm going to have to go with sports because there's nothing out there that fires me up like a good night LSU football game. <laughs> of course, Hunter. <laughs> I mean, you'll see me out there, especially if I'm there. I mean, I am not yelling like that to a movie screen. We've seen videos. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yell at movie screens. Just the passion yeah, that comes out of a sports does. game. It's, uh, I like watching the Super Bowl. I do too. I, I, take, I, like that. I watch World Cup, but I don't ever watch soccer. You watch World Cup? Every once in a while. I'll always I mean, watch They only have them every once on. in a while. Hunter watches every sport. Like knows across the board, even sports he doesn't even oh, care about. Friends are so deep in that that they yeah. just mention a name and I'm like, who? What? You know? And then of course I they look at me like I'm weird. It's fascinating to me those guys that can talk baseball 
all day. Stats. The stats. They know the numbers. They know where they played in college. They knew the batting average. They're, all that. ERA. I mean, that's impressive to me. And it's something to argue about other than stupid stuff. I guess that's its own language. I'd rather ar- argue stupid stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. That all freaking day. Did you play sports growing up? Oh, yeah. I swam, man. I played the foosball. You did play some foosball. I played some foosball. Come on, man. Yeah. I, remind me again how you found out about the teams. Swimming coach. One of my assistant swimming coaches was, uh, he said he was a team guy. I think I've looked him up and I didn't see him, but. Oh, shit. Really? Anyway, he. I mean, people ask me about that all the time. He was definitely a big influence. But then. So what, what do you think about that? What do I mean? I get questions on that. Well. I got people who said they were something, and they, they changed my life because of it in a good way. And then you find out they didn't carry the title that they were supposed to be carrying. <clears throat> Does that make them any less of a person? Well, yeah, they're a liar. So, yeah. Yeah, I, But I, I freaking, you know, their lie actually... freaking straight. You don't give a shit. You don't give a damn. Y'all but remember that my reason? thing is that lie made you into something that you never thought was possible. Yeah, but... Yeah, that's true. However, that doesn't detract from the fact that I'm not going to say I'm. That's a, what I'm, I'm, a, I'm not an Army Ranger. I'm not an airline that? pilot. I'm not a. You know, I'm, there's a dozen, a million things that I'm not. I know. You know, and I, I get don't. It. I don't want to. I want. I don't want someone to think that I'm something I'm not. Okay, so hold on. That's because you have we integrity. Spent our entire lives telling people that we were something that we weren't. Like I never told anybody I was a seal. When they asked me, I was a rodeo clown, a prison barber. I freaking. Anything. I was a flugelbinder repairman. See, that's awesome. That's <laughs> a lie. Flugelbinder repairman. Can you do that? Can you actually do that? Oh, no. I, I Come couldn't. on. You know little plastic things on the end of a shoelace? You know what those are called? Flugelbinders. Oh, it's called a... Uh, we just looked We looked up. this up the other day. Flugelbinders? Uh, <laughs> flugelbinders? I only had one person ask me what flugelbinders were. <laughs> that was your line? Dude I, had, dude, I heard Waffle House Cook was a good one one time. And he actually kept the Waffle House uniform in his apartment. <laughs> so if he'd wake up in the morning and there was somebody in there, he had to, he's like, hey, I got to go to work. You need That's to, funny. You know, it was pretty good. That's funny stuff. It right was there. real good. <laughs> Waffle okay, House uniform. Talking about movies, because you'll probably get a kick out of this. Marcus declared January the month of James Bond. So I said, let's start with number one and just go all the way through. So we're on what? Six. Six now, and James Bond January. It's January 9th, though. I know. I know. We started. We late. didn't. We just we got into. Are there thirty James Bond movies? There's twenty eight. Oh, so right. we're right on. Yeah, you guys are a little bit behind. So well, I we could double up on a rainy day. I. She's never seen it. I've never watched James Bond. I've seen parts of them, but I've never sat and watched through them. I'm actually obsessed. I really, really love the old. Original James Bonds. Sean Connery was it. He was the best. Best, hands down. Sean Connery. She didn't even recognize him. I didn't. I didn't think it was him. <laughs> so she, he actually grew into being a better looking man. Down. As he got older. Is what she says. Kind of like, that's what's happening to me. <laughs> Can we get pictures of you when you were younger? You look just like that. He's looked just like this my whole life. I just sent one to my same mama. Same mustache. Same oh, come hair, on, man. Same color. Right out of the 80s. Can you ever freaking Tom Selleck, man? You guys are mean and hurtful. I, I want to put it on our YouTube. Is anybody from your buzz class still alive? Oh, everybody's still alive. Come <laughs> Wait, on, man. How old do you, how old do you think I am? <laughs> wow. No. 
That, that is just wrong. What buzz class were you? 131. Me and Don Shipley, Seven Fleet Sailor. God, I was real scared of that guy when he came. He's one of my instructors in SQT. He came out, demo god. <laughs> I'll, I'll find it I think for he you. had a freaking reel of Primacord on his belt. Tied to, he had it strapped to his belt. The first time I met him, he was out there teaching us how to blow stuff up. Wouldn't surprise me. Y'all still buddies? Yeah. I haven't talked to him in a while, but. I talked to him the other day. What uh, buzz? And the, the missus. What buzz class was Gothro? Oh, shh, 150, 154. 154, something yeah, like that. 154. 151. Okay. I know there's going to be a test. He's going to, he'll probably. Yeah, he'll probably. Oh, let me know about it. <laughs> My buzz class was the last hard one anyway. Now. Last hard one, right? Yeah. Marcus's, After that, I think I really easy. Marcus's swim buddy, uh, Tyler Black, used to live down the street and he would come over all the time and hang out. And for some reason, I thought, because Marcus was in two buds classes. He was in 226 and 228. And for some reason, I thought Tyler was in 226. And I said that one time, and I don't think he ever forgave me. He was like, I was in Marcus's buds. I was in 228. He was so mad. He didn't know know your rollback? Hmm. Mm. He was we, so We met Rollback Land. I punished him in, when he was a rollback. That was the hardest thing was Rollback okay, Land. Okay, can you, let's freaking, talk about what that. What are you talking about, man? That was easy. What are you talking about? He, that's where we met. He, God rest my, so my swim buddy Tyler's dead now. He died, but he, that's where we met was in Rollback Land. And we used to get our asses whipped so bad because he's the only guy that didn't have a six-pack. <laughs> I don't think he was ever... He had that bad body disease. You remember what I'm talking about? Like, no matter how hard he worked, it's a thing. Guys have it. They can't help it. He I have just, it now. He just, like, so. from the, his, you know, just bad body disease. I don't know what else you call it, but that's what we called it. But he could run. God, dude, that freaking guy. That was when we got whipped so much. Because he looked like he was out of shape, but he wasn't. God rest his soul. I freaking miss him, but... I just punished. Yeah, he punished. You. I just punished you because it was fun. I it didn't. was fun. So, what know. do your punishments look like when you see someone like Marcus um, in buds and being a rollback? He had been hurt. What's that? What's going through your mind? How do you want to punish them? Oh, I didn't punish them unless if if they were a brown shirt. There's no real punishment you can give them, right? I mean, they already. My opinion, my and at least in my head, I'm like, they're gonna make it. They just gotta finish. The white shirts now, they just—it's relentless. They go to the it's surf. Game on for them. They days, go to the yeah. surf all the time, nonstop. As far as I'm concerned, but I didn't really deal with white shirts other than uh, as rollbacks. They—I don't know what they I think. They went back into pre-training or something, but uh, we had all the brown shirts. Yeah, that's right. So for me, it was—you know—anytime he'd even look at me sideways, it was go ahead surf. <laughs> and then when they would do something. Freaking dumb, which, night, was, dude. which was probably every other day. Then I was doing night school, so when we didn't have a night evolution, then I would make him and whoever else was with him meet me on the berm, and I'd sit up on the berm, drink coffee for my class. Was chair? Yeah, I had a little lounge chair. I'd bring up there, and then I just make them in and out of surf zone. It was awesome. It was awesome. Now it was fun. That's for hilarious. God, you had a we chair about on the berm. Freaking... Yeah, well, I had made the mistake of talking back to his wife <laughs> accidentally. I didn't know it was her. Not that I ever talked back to a woman. Anyway, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, that was the middle of the night, though. I didn't yeah, torture you in normally the middle, in the middle of the night. Of the night. 
And as an instructor, what's your, everybody has their own ideas of what makes a Navy SEAL or what the common denominator is between all of them. What do you think is like a common thread? Unwavered self-belief. That's why I wrote that book, Unwavered, because we teach college kids and they're all whiny little thumbsuckers. One little thing go, doesn't go their way and the next thing you know they're quitting and calling mommy and daddy and it all boils down to, do you believe you're going to do it or not? You know, first day of buds, what do they do, man? They stand you out on the on the beach and shoulder to shoulder, and everybody walks in a surf zone. I don't know how big your class is. Mine was 128, right? My class was 131, but we had 128 kids. And you look down, and I look at them, and, you know, all the buff dudes, you know, the big guys with muscles on their muscles and everything. I'm like, oh, he'll make it, he'll make it, he'll make it. And I was, I was not small, but I was not big. None of those dudes were there. First one's gone. None I'll never them, forget none of them the were freaking there. yoked ones. What you like can't see is what's inside of a guy's head, and it's all has to do with, it all has to do with belief. Do you believe? If you believe, you're going to make it no matter what happens. You just have to believe. And the Navy doesn't train that into you, right? That's, why, that's where the Navy fails. When I say the Navy, I'm talking about spec war fails. Is they think they can start you know, a guy when he shows up for boot camp or something like that, and they, they're going to get him ready for buds, and it's like... See, I think that's the exact opposite. In other words, you don't, you don't need to introduce a guy to BUDS, right? BUDS is an adult program, and it's a program that's designed to weed out those people who don't believe they can make it. It's not designed to make you a tougher person. It's not designed to give you self-belief. You get more self-belief so you can operate at an elite level instead of at, a, you know, at a, an average everyday man level. But in order to you know, make it through buds, you're going to believe you can do it. When the pain, when it hurts so bad that, you know, you don't want to continue, if you believe you can make it, then then you'll continue. I don't think it has anything to do with anything. We had we had one of the best runners on the planet in my class, and he quit two weeks in, you know. and I mean, he literally was doing like 405 miles in boots. God. It was insane. Roberto Salazar's brother was in my class. He quit as soon as he could quit. You know, I mean, so the collegiate swimmers quit fast too. And it wasn't because of swimming either. There's always something else that got them. Do you think it's because those people haven't had to work hard for what they've gotten? Oh, we got rich kids too, though. I don't, I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it has to do with, you know, I, I mean that by we like call it, natural you know, a lot talent. of people say, I don't think natural talent has anything to do with it either. Because I had zero natural talent in running, and I still made it through buds. That's what I'm saying. You Do know? you think that the people with natural talent that haven't had to put out, yeah. those people are the ones weeded out the quickest? Well, I mean, again, that's hard to tell what's in their head, right? But there are there are guys there that they can do more push-ups than me. They could do more pull-ups. They could run faster. I was, I was one of the fastest swimmers in my class, so that wasn't really a, a deal, but, you know... Because there are when professionals it, that do make it. When, it. when it came to everything else, it was just really, it really boils down to, is that what you really want to do, and do you believe you can do it? And it doesn't matter what you look like when you get there. It doesn't matter how in shape you are, how out of shape you are. I hadn't, I, the longest I had ever run in my life, other than like a football practice or something, but it was like a mile. And guess when that was? When I took the screening the test. I never, I, I swam. I didn't, I didn't run anywhere. You know, so I got to Buds, and I remember Master Chief Scarborough, Senior Chief Scarborough, 
heavy guy, belly, and he took us on that first run on the soft sand run, the old course, and everything was two miles, and I'm just like... He ran his ass off? I'm just like, man, this is not going to be... That was the, the This is part. not going to be good for me. But it didn't make me quit. You know, people quit when they don't believe. It's just like, it's just like anything else. It all boils down to belief. What about the nights, like Marcus and I have talked about before, when um, the instructors would intentionally razz someone just to see if they'll quit like uniform inspection or fuck with their helmets or whatever like do things to just poke the bear yeah you don't need to do that in buds any instructor that does that's got to screw loose in my opinion you know because buds is hard enough instructors don't need to make it harder and that's why i loved it i went there and i thought i was going to do seven days a week and you know, trash cans down the hallway and all that kind of stuff. Instructors showed up for the events. They facilitated the event. You know, they would yell at you when it was like a safety thing. But other than that, man, it was just like you either want to do it and you, you desire to do it and you have the belief that you can do it or you don't. And if you don't, it's just like when Hell Week, you know, I ran a lot of Hell Weeks, man. And the kids would go through the proctor, then they'd go through the class LPO, and then they'd go through the chief, the corpsman, and then me. Or maybe it was the corpsman, the chief, and then me. You know, the shift OIC. <clears throat> I didn't even ask him a question. It was like, you want to quit? Yeah. Okay, so I guess that's a question. And it was like, see you later, man. I'm not talking nobody out of quitting. Nobody. Instructors want to spend time trying to talk somebody out of quitting. That's great. But once you get that, I'm going to quit in, my, in your head, man. They might put you in for another day or two and get you to go back in, but you're going to quit anyway. What evolution pulls more guys out in Hell Week? Say that again. In Hell Week, what evolution is there a... Man, it's first and second night, right? It's uh, it's breakout, which, you know, after three hours of that stuff, everybody, you know, that a lot of guys that didn't really think that combat was going to be like that, and granted, it's nowhere near combat, but it scares a bunch of dudes, number yeah. one, and then Steel Pier. Steel Pier, right? Yep. What's what, steel pier? That's one. If you go to SBU piers, a big long steel floating piers out there, and you're in and out of the water and laying on that pier from, you know, from ten at night till sun comes up. Sun comes up. You got to wave hello. You wave goodbye to the sun, in the water, and then you have to wave hello to it. We're so still you in are the water. in and out of the water and on that steel pier all night long. I can remember my hip flexors oh, so bad because of, because of shivering. And the ice, they pull ice all of, ice water all over us and just... Uh, it was so yeah. cold. Mass exited, you know, during our hell week. And it was just one dude after another quitting. But it's that's the job, right? The job is being miserable, cold, wet, tired, and you still have to perform. And it goes back to World War II. It doesn't go back to anywhere else, man. The guy who designed Hell Week was a survivor of the Bataan, Bataan death march. Yeah. And he's like, man, if I can stay up for five days and, and, and do nonstop physical you know, work, if you will, then, then he can make it through just about anything. And I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that's the only thing that separates us and every other special force out there is Hell Week. Is our Hell Week I didn't right? know that that's you know? who designed Hell Week. Do you know yeah. his name? Yeah, I want to say it was Draper Kaufman, but... I'm probably wrong. Um, <clears throat> I did know at some point, but it's been a while since I've really had to pull that out. But it was, it was a War II fella, you know. Was he a UDT? 
No, I don't think so. He he ended up in that world, yes. But okay. At that time, I don't think he was. Because before that, it was just like you know, scouts and raiders. something. Scouts and raiders. Yeah. Scouts and raiders. Yeah. OSS, NCDUs, and UDT. Those four units combined together made the current. What we got now? SEAL team today. How weak is what separates the us from the rest of them, and it it gives you a weird, a weird mental ability that no other training is going to give you. I'm not saying the other special forces they're hard i'm not saying they're not talented i'm not saying they can't they can't they can do what they can do but they are not seals they never will be seals they can talk about well we do everything seals do no you don't so it's not the same so maybe i'm you know i'm biased obviously but it's definitely not the same and that's why seals get so bent when you get somebody that either says he was a seal and isn't or says you know i was in the someone show and we're just like seals and it's like well, if you're just like seals, then why are you comparing yourself to seals? You know, everybody compares themselves to seals. Seals don't compare themselves to anybody else. You know. What was your hardest part in Hell Week? Was it still pure? No, actually, I got cellulitis really, really bad. I think it was this left hand, and my hand ballooned up, and then my forearm split open. Oh, no, did you have a barrack? Huh? Did you have to go to the chamber? No, actually, they just gave me antibiotics and sent me in the water. <laughs> in the water. No, what, actually, during Hell Week, they gave me nothing. It wasn't until uh, the next day, I think, Saturday or, no. Oh. Because we secured at, like, say so, 6 in the evening on Friday. There's only one, how many classes have Nobel Hells? 141, I know, has a Nobel Hell. Warren Officer Faisal, you remember him? You remember I remember the name, yeah. Draper Kaufman. He would always talk about that. Was I right? Draper Kaufman is who created Hell Week. Good pull. Man, look Pastor at that. Tennis, man. How about that? You had one answer to get right, bro, and you freaking nailed it. Good, Good job. job. <laughs> Hell Week, man. Kaufman, the Kaufman. So speaking of Hell Week and um, your instructor status, we talked a little bit before the show about leadership. What mm. are some of your like key leadership abilities like what does a leader have to have yeah would you recommend all the guys go through being a budget instructor i never got a chance to do it no don't do it no no i guess you'd operate man i want to be a budget instructor because yeah, i wanted I get to get that. a degree yeah i'm talking you know I'm saying, pull I, was a new, I was a new warrant they wouldn't let me do anything else so i went to is that when you got sent there right yeah. when you put that on yeah. oh, i left team three and put on warrant went to my little warrant school checked into buds as a phaso so when leader, as far as instructors at Bud's training, I mean, the, the leadership qualities, they got to be seasoned. Well, senior. look, leadership qualities, man, I'm, like I said, I'm, I mean, that's the whole Panama thing really changed my whole outlook on leadership. So I can use my first couple of platoons. I had a, my very first platoon. I'm fresh out of Bud's, but I'm, I'm on fire. I mean, I loved it. I loved showing up at the team area and I just, everything I could get my hands and do, I was doing, which is. You know, most guys are, but I was, like, over the top. And so I was probably not hard to handle, but I was definitely, you know, in my first fit rep that I got from my first platoon lieutenant, you know, he said, lacks a refined sense of tact. Because for me, it was everything that we did, one, it's to it's to go in and not necessarily kill the enemy, and but it's kill the enemy and infrastructure, right? It's, it's a cycle. We are a psychological weapon, in my opinion. And the current battle over there in, in Israel right now is, a, I think, a, a 
a good thing. We can talk about collateral damage and what's acceptable and what's not and all those good things. But in my first platoon, man, for me, it was just like everything that we do has to be, we have to be so good at what we do that we can scare the enemy out of the water. We can scare the enemy out of the woods, you know, just like the men with green faces in Vietnam, you know. But on the flip side, we have to save our own, we have to save our own people. We have to do it safely. We have to do it. But we, so we have to train so hard that uh, no matter what we do, we're, we're way better at it than anyone else. And we have to train so hard that when we do actually go into combat, combat's easier than the training, if that makes sense, which is hard to do, but it's doable. So as a leader, man, you got you got a lot. So my first platoon, you know, I had a old Vietnam senior chief who was really, really interested in drinking, and that was great, but never taught us a thing. My platoon lieutenant and my platoon ensign were both the type of guys that it, it's like, um, what's in it for me? Kind of, kind of a, a situation. And they, were, they weren't really interested in doing anything other than uh, just kind of making, making it through to deployment. So case in point, we had 14 35 horsepower motors. We only used 35s on the East Coast. 14, and at the end of the deployment, we had one that worked. And nobody cared. Nobody, like nobody, except for me. And we were like three days away from redeploying back to the States. And some general wanted to see a duck, a rubber duck. We had to do, a, a, we had to do two double ducks. So two C-130s, four boats. So we tie our boats together and drop them out of the back of an airplane. It's called a duck. Send them out, parachute, guys jump out, all that stuff. We had one motor that worked. And it was luck. We were lucky that once the boats and the men hit the water and he's like everybody's safe yeah and he's like okay let's go drink and the general took off because we had to get towed back in by the old sea foxes because none of our motors worked but nobody cared and to me in my head i'm like we're supposed to be ready for war up until the day we redeploy back you know and we we were not ready for war next platoon and we had i had uh a stint in between where i did some training and CQB was just coming to the teams all that good stuff anyway I get into another platoon and we had six E6s in that platoon oh I see it was pre prior how many new guys one maybe five or six so each E6 because the OIC did not want to A give authority to one E6 and B didn't want to hurt the other five E6's little you know self images he gave each E6 one guy to be in charge of she had six LPOs, all in charge of one guy each. And he'd, he'd call down, because we were on a med cruise, he'd call down and say, hey, you know, Randy, can you get this done? But then he'd also call two other E6s and be like, can you get this done? Can you get that? So three of us are trying to get the same job done with our one E5 in tow, and we find out, and we're just like, I mean, what is this? You yeah. know? It was just, I was... Just a waste of time. The and training resources. that we did in that platoon, everybody was more interested in, in running and running fast and doing those kind of things, and nobody was interested in actually being out to operate well, you know. And so it was another platoon where I'm just like, wow. And but the thing is, is they're all really nice guys, but we had guys that should not have kept their tridents, should not, and they did. And everybody, well, I don't want to kick a guy out because he worked so hard to get where he is. But it's like if he's not cutting it, he needs to go. He needs to be gone. 
you know. So I had all these little lessons in my head when I finally got into that platoon where we went to, to Panama. And I, w I, I just remember calling Tim Basilbeck, who was the ops boss at the time, and I went to language school. And then my, he's like, what do you want to do when you get back? And I called him every week because I remember him kind of complaining. Another guy that he sent never called back. And so he just kind of... He just kind of disappeared from the teams somewhere. But so I called back every week. I'm like, hey, Ops Boss, you know, it's me. What do you want to do? And I go, I want to be in a platoon, and I want it to be full of new dudes, and I want to be the only E6. And that's, that was my thing. It was like, <laughs> I just want to be the only E6 in the platoon. So I did that. You know, we, he came back, and he gave me a platoon, and it was full of brand-new dudes, and they had been together three months, and they were always in trouble. Always. Got what you asked for. Got what I asked for, right? Yep. He's like, you got your hands cut out. Or your... You it's know, like I'm a bunch of puppies. Yeah. He's like, you got your work cut out for you. And I'm just like, no, this is going to be good. And I can't say that the methods that I used to get them to gel were the right... I wouldn't do it again that way, but I tell you what, man, we had 16 guys that were unbelievably close. And it was the best experience I've ever had in my life in the teams and it wasn't all me it was just it was the right group of guys that came together at the exact right time what methods did you use so i made us uh, i'm a i'm a anti-mandatory fun guy in other words you know i'm not into you know dinner parties and and let's get all the platoon to do what they need to do and you know on friday nights we're all going to get together and and all that kind of stuff but what i would do is on the way out of the team area <laughs> At gate five, there was uh, JB's Gallery of Girls. So I'd make them all meet there. And we had two guys that were very religious, and I'm like, you're coming in. You can turn your backs to the girls, but you're coming in. And we would just sit there and drink and talk and that kind of thing. But So that was a method I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't do now. But it worked in that time. It was, I think a lot of it is that they knew that my – my desire was for their best interest, right? We're going to train hard, but we need to stick together. You need to know why you're doing what you're doing. There's so many leaders out there that they don't want to tell you why you're doing stuff. Just do it, you know? And it's like, no. That's different when you know what you're fighting no, for. No, it's like, do this, and this is why you're doing it now, and this is why you're doing it to this level, in my opinion, right? So it's leadership 101. Is, But you're also, not only you're training that guy, and you're teaching them. My biggest thing was the outboard motors. I told Chris Kinney was our OBM guy. And I'm just like, I, I want to take any motor off the rack, put it in the water, and it better start in the first pull. Better. Every time. All the time. No matter how long we were together. And we were together a long time. And, man, I think once in years, once, motor didn't start in the first pull. And I remember him jumping from one boat to the other, jumped in there, and he pushed the dude out of the way and yanked it, and it started. Second point, it's all feet because those things you know are made not to run. But you, but he was on it all the time. You know what I mean? You know he was he was those things break down. He understood what it meant, right? Because it's life or death for us. You can't be in a shore break in Alaska or a shore break in some other godforsaken country, and and the shore break is ten feet high in a in a boat with all your stuff in it, and if that shore break hits your boat, everything's going to scatter. It's so important when they would right? drop us out of the submarine. And we'd come to the surface, submarine keeps going. And if you're sitting on the surface, 100, out in the middle of nowhere, and that motor doesn't crank, what you're saying, uh, it's... And so it's life or death, so you got to teach them that.
Did you know that stress could be the sneaky culprit behind your weight loss struggles? If you're dealing with stress, lean might just be the solution you're looking for. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on your blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat, and stress can also lead to a slower metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And we all know about stress eating and sugar cravings. Now for the good news. The study's ingredients in lean have been shown to maintain healthy blood sugar levels, and they help optimize metabolism to keep your appetite under control. If your life is a little bit stressful and you want to lose weight, go add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. And here's something special just for you. You can enjoy a 15% discount and free shipping when you visit TakeLean.com and enter promo code TNQ at checkout. That's TNQ at TakeLean.com and take charge of your weight and stress levels with lean. Visit TakeLean.com today. This is why the motors need to work all the time, every time. And if they don't, this is what, you know, we're going to die. And people just don't take things that seriously. And they'd look at me and they're like, Randy, you're just, you're insane. You know, and it's like, no, I'm not insane because these guys need to know the stakes, you know, of, of everything that we're doing. And we got that group of dudes together and it was phenomenal. It was just amazing. We didn't have a chief. I was the LPO of the platoon. and How'd that work? Um, it worked out really well. I ended up making chief on the deployment, but, um, but it was because of Panama. Um, <clears throat> but it was hard because as a non-chief, you know, chiefs like to razz you. But there were 28 chiefs at the team, and when we lost our chief because he, he, he just wasn't able to keep up, um, he had been in the diving community for a really long time. It was just kind of his last hurrah, and it just didn't work out. We went to every other chief, senior chief, and master chief in team two, and me and uh, the platoon commander, Ed Coughlin, after we lost the chief, which was, I want to say, July-ish, August-ish, before Panama, which was December of 89. <clears throat> and none of them wanted to be in the platoon because we were really tight. But I, I let the reins off of those dudes, you know. I mean, we were, we were in the team area, man. If there was something going on in the team area, man, we were, we were in it. We were, we were loud, but we had a lot of fun. And we were good. It, there was one other platoon. It was Leif Patala's platoon. I forget uh, the name of the OIC. Great dude. He'd been through Buds three times. That's a story in and of itself. But they were a fantastic platoon, and they had it all deployed together so many different times. It was crazy, and our goal was to be better than they were, mm -hmm. you know. And, and the, the guys responded to that. I think people respond to leadership that's, you know, that, is training them to replace you, right? So I guess leadership 101 lesson two is you, you need to be training everybody that is below you to replace you. Everybody. Because you're going to be gone in a year, two years, whatever. You come back and you're going to fleet up to some other job. Somebody's got to replace you. And if you kind of hold back and don't teach them everything they need to know, then, then what are you doing? You know, you're not setting up the team. You're not setting up your group. You're not setting up that next platoon for success if you're if you're holding back info, you know. And there's a difference between they have to go out and do the nug work and fix the dive rigs and everything else while you're in doing planning. But when you get the opportunity, they need to know 
They need to know what's up. They need to know why you're doing it. And they need to know, you know, what's at stake. And they need to know that every little detail of everything they do counts. And it saves lives. And it saves our lives, you know. It's even in the team sometimes you think the, what we get assigned to do is trivial. But it's not. I mean, you're a Navy SEAL, so anything that comes down on top of us is important. Which, I mean, that's a, is it busy work or is it, yeah. you know. So that same platoon with the six LPOs, if one guy, so let's say it's a Friday evening and we're supposed to dive Monday morning. And throughout the week, they hadn't been able to adjust the demand valves and do all the stuff they need to do, the dive rig maintenance. And one guy had to do that because he was the only one with the cert to do it. And we didn't have a, a second guy. The whole platoon stayed, literally, sitting in a platoon hut till midnight together. For what? Because this one dude has to stay and do all that work. What he should have done as the leader, he should have stayed. And he should have helped the guy, handed him wrenches, do that kind of stuff. Send everybody else home because your time back in the team area is precious, right? It's, it's, better, it's more than gold, especially for the guys that are married. I don't know how they do that. But Those married guys? The time in the team area, man, that's when you're back and you could be home, that's precious. And the guys, all that did to me and the other dudes in that platoon was make us bitter. Because we were just like, why are we here? Well, we were, we're supporting that other guy. No, you're not. You're just being a jerk, you know. I didn't, I didn't get it. I still don't get that mentality, you know. So it's like, hey, if I'm working on something and you can only put two hands on it, everybody else needs to go home. So when I became the LPO, man, that was, I stay. I get there first. I leave last. And as the, the leader, you know, the guy that's running the show, man, that's, you know, I'll help who needs, I'll help who needs help. But every second that I could let those dudes go so they could be home, the single guys need that same, they need that same time, you know. They need to go, you know, chase girls. They need to go detox, do whatever they need to do. So for me, it was like, man, if we are, if we are in the team area, there's no busy work, nothing. We don't just do work. And, you know, <clears throat> when Rudy Bosch was the CMC of two, it was tough to let guys go before cleanup in the afternoon. But I would do it all the time, man. It's like, you, 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 and you. Man, we don't need you. You can go. Because Rudy didn't really count dudes at cleanup. He counted them at muster, but not really at cleanup. So I kind of, but I couldn't let the whole platoon go. But there were days where I did, where it was just kind of like, you guys go home, you know, because we aren't, we aren't doing anything. You told me that the other day. I, I didn't know that Rudy was the master chief at two for... 25 years straight, 1962 to 1987. What a great run. He was the CMC of two. No one, that's unheard of. That's still even a thing. That's not even a real thing. Couldn't happen again. No. Is he still alive? Rudy Bott, no, no, he, he passed. passed away last year. Last year, year before last. He was uh, 45 years in the Navy day for day. Wow. 45 years. He was one of the survivor. He, had, he, has such oh. a, he has such an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. And he was fan. Yeah. He was fantastic, dude. Absolutely fantastic. And I learned so much just from him because he took care of the guys. You know, we'd get seven dollars a day per DM, and he'd be like, "Give me your check." I'm like what? Hand him a check. He'd go cash them all, which he could do back then. And then he would get some white shirts from Buds, fly them out, and he would cook for. They would cook for the platoon. If you're, you know, up at AP Hill for eight weeks, you ate like a king. Three meals a day. And Rudy just had those dudes working nonstop. It was incredible. I thought it was the best life because you're training, and then in between that, you get to eat. It was, it was incredible. Team two was the best place ever, you know, for me anyway. 
Pod Steam too. Whatever. I didn't see it that way. You're at one too, right? No, to three. No, that's right. I never, I never went to two. I don't know, man. There's. But you always hear that though. No fun one and Bud's team too, because they're the first two original two teams. teams yeah. But I think Herschel Davis was the CMC of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Rudy was the CMC of two. But you know, is Herschel still alive? I believe so. Yeah. But they ran it. You know, they didn't let the OICs and the AOICs and the Chiefs and all that. They didn't let them run their dudes in the ground. If you're back in a team area, you PT as a team which I truly believe in. All of this stuff they're doing now is is taking away from team unity, in my opinion. They don't do that? They don't do, do Team PT anymore? I don't know one team that's doing it, no. Somebody said SDB I thought that was, was doing we it. We definitely but, do it. But I know that there are many teams that don't do that. Especially in Hawaii. You know, but you would, you would PT every morning... And I can I can even recite what the PTs were at Team Two. All right, let's hear it. Monday morning typically was just PT and a run. Tuesday was always, um, of course, right? So you do over the water or regular? No, you had the well, you had four smalls and one big. I think you did the big one first and four smalls, and then you ran. It was like a five mile run after that. Wednesday was kind of a free day, um, maybe. Thursdays was always a swim, and Friday was always. Uh, uh, state park run so it was nine and a half miles we have every friday at stv and rudy did a, every one of them every one of them friday run swims swim i checked into Fort Island when i checked run, into the team he was 57 still doing all that yep good for him when man. i checked into team two man he was 57 years old still running pt and swimming check the watch bill get a haircut really, right get a haircut and check get the a watch bill. check the watch bill kind of funny so i don't know i kind of went way off the deep end on the whole <clears throat> leadership thing but i think it made a huge difference so you know you talk about buds and all that did you get to stuff. stack your platoon or did they were they just delivered to you no man I, I, that particular platoon where i was the lpo and we ended up doing panama and the first gulf war um i just like i said i i got back i was still in my whites and basilvac was like hey your platoon's in cleaning some weapons they had just gotten back from uh seattle diving at the sub base and what is it bremerton or whatever bremerton. and uh they one of the dudes that were on the bus and security dude comes in and they had limpets yeah <clears throat> they had their dive rigs and they're in the rubber and the guy's like what's all this and one of the brain surgeons i won't mention his name but he knows who he is was like well, this is a bunch of bombs we're gonna put them on your submarines and oh man that'll go over well they ended no they ended up getting kicked out and sent home and if you treat them right, well, when you, you, when you dress them candy, down right? and you yeah. scream at them and, and, and they, they understand why you're screaming at them, then it's completely different. Different, yeah. It's just kind of like when you were knucklehead at Bud's, man. You always had a smile on your face. I can remember that. And it was, yeah. it was funny because it was just like, no matter what you do to some of these guys, it's... Because some of them don't, we don't know you're serious until you get to that level. And then you'll be like, hey, man, you didn't have to yell at me. I get you. All right, I'll do it. And then they'll fall right in line. Those hard-headed sons of guns you ever come across, uh, maybe. But so the last time you were on here, you talked about Panama. But can we go into it again? Absolutely, yeah. I mean that that platoon was the best experience of my life, and even now, I like Chris died. I text with him probably every day. It's odd if I miss a day, and he was my dive buddy. So that all started in July for us. So we had gotten together. We had a platoon lieutenant that was injured. As uh, we had gone on a trip to Puerto Rico, and he injured his. Uh, What's that tendon that runs across the bottom of your foot? So, oh, is that right? Anyway, 
I'm not a doctor, but I was injured and he couldn't run. So he couldn't participate in anything. So we had no chief and it was just me. And the AOIC was, was so new. He didn't, he was a spanker. So, I mean, all these guys were maybe what, you know, six months out of buds. Just so got this their is when you had your team where you said you wanted to be the only Correct. six with a bunch right. of new guys. So we were, it was in June. We were supposed to start our land warfare phase, and we did. But the OIC could not participate. And the chief was, he was still there, but he didn't participate. Well, he could, but he didn't. And so it was just me with all these dudes trying to, and all brand new spankers, man running around shooting doing all sorts of crazy stuff i remember the first evolution we did i we went to the pop-up targets and i'm like i'm a big iron sights dude we didn't have all the eight cogs and all the stuff they have now but i'm just like you're gonna learn to shoot this thing and we're gonna do combat zeros so for five five six it's you know 25 yards point aim point impact is the same at 250 it's point aim point impact and i'm like we're gonna that's how we're gonna zero everything we're gonna go to the pop-ups until you can shoot the pop-ups and not miss you know, so you know where to aim, you know, so at 150 yards, aim for the dude's belt line because it, the bullet is above the, you know, point of the sight line. So we just did that. And I remember we did that for two days. We were supposed to shoot 130,000 rounds at, in AP Hill. And I think we, we, we were supposed to do that in the seven weeks or eight weeks we were up there. And we did it in two. Called back to Carly and was like, hey, we're out of bullets. He yelled at me and sent more bullets, you know, and it was just, it was one of those things where we just, we trained super hard. We'd wake up every morning and we'd PT and run to the showers. Then we'd hit Aunt Jenny's for pancakes and then we'd hit the range from noon to six, come back from, you know, six to seven and go from seven to midnight every day, every day. I'm not selling a kick-ass life. It but on the weekends, they drove back to the beach every weekend. They drive back to the beach. And then it was weird. So Carly shows up one day and we're doing, we're just starting to do like movement drills. Carly shows up, the CO with Ed Coughlin and toe. Ed Coughlin was a tall, older lieutenant that was in the buds class ahead of me, 130. Prior EOD guy. So he had like 10 years in EOD. And he, he's there and I'm like, hey, Ed, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. So Carly shows up in the evening with Ed and leaves with the platoon lieutenant. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to, I don't know if he listens to this and I don't want him to feel bad because it wasn't his fault. So, but I didn't know. I'm like, why are they replacing him? I mean, we got a good lieutenant. We don't, we don't need another one. And then Ed started, you know, he's like, I'm just going to see what you guys are doing and we'll do that for a couple of weeks and then I'll, I'll start changing things. And it's like, any hey, good leader supposed to do that, right? It's like, just see what's happening, and then weeks down the road, we'll start incorporating the way I do things, you know? It took Ed like 10 minutes. It, his two weeks was 10 minutes, because he didn't like the way I was doing things. And his experience level when it came to hand signals and movement techniques and peels and all this stuff and open terrain, close terrain, it was way ahead of me, way ahead of me. And I was just doing my best, and he would, we'd do a little drill, and he'd come over and, okay, why, why are you doing that? You know, why are you doing this? And finally, it was like, I it was like 9 o'clock at night. And Ed, you know, he's probably four or five inches taller than me. And I remember staring at his, you know, chin. And I'm finally, I just poked him in the chest. And I go, how about this? How about you just tell me what you want done? And that's what we'll do. 
because this whole thing of you questioning everything that I'm doing won't work. Your experience level is way above mine. And, man, we were like best friends after that. It was insane. And we, he taught us things, man, that I, I to this day, have never forgotten. But, man, we, we trained so stinking hard. But the reason why he was there was evident two weeks later. Two weeks later, it's, I want to say it was a Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday. And we were out on the range. And Ed comes over and he's like, dude, we got to go back to the, back to the beach. And I'm like, for what? He goes, Carly wants to see us. And I'm like, did we do something wrong? And he's like, no, we didn't do anything wrong, but he needs to see us. So me, Ed, and Manboy Simpkins, um, the AOIC, take off, go to the beach. And we get to, we get back there at 11. 12 at night, whatever it was. And Carly's in his office and he has this has this image. And it's of a port. And there's, you know, six or eight patrol boats. And he's like, You're over here, they're over there, what are you gonna do? And I'm just like, Of course, you know, I'm the one that's talking. I'm just like, it's easy, combat swimmer, can we go now? You know? And he's like, Yeah, not so fast. And then he explained to us the whole thing that our deployment wasn't supposed to start until June, a year a year away. It's June, July now. It was in July when he called us in. And the platoon that was ahead of us, they were deploying in December. But Operation Blue Spoon, which was the you know, the op plan for Panama, that was that was rolling along, man. And I had I didn't know anything that was happening. All I just know is he's just like, You will do you will finish your land warfare and then you're gonna roll right into combat swimmer. And that's all you're doing, right? And so you're doing 10 weeks at the hill and yeah, 10 weeks combat swimmer. About that. What's that? How fired up were the boys about that? Didn't tell them. So there's a reason. We didn't tell them because nobody could know what was going on, right? So we went back to the hill. Uh, you know, we, I think we slept at home that night, went back in the morning, and just got right back into it. And Carly's like, you can have as many bullets explosives as you want do whatever you need to do just call the mass chief and he'll he knows what's going on so he'll send it to you man we trained as hard as we could train and as soon as we got back from that it was right into combat swimmer right and i don't it wasn't a secret at the team that i didn't like doing combat swimmer um i was a great swimmer but when we talk combat swimmer we're talking about diving with the drager and a compass board depth gauge watch you know not a gps nothing and take a chart draw some lines go dive so I don't want to talk specific tactics here in this forum because I don't want the enemy to ever hear it because there's still guys active duty and they're probably employing those tactics. And I think a good leader that's out there wanting to write a book should follow that same path, right? We don't need to divulge yeah. how we do stuff. The stories are out there. Hey, this is what happened, mm -hmm. and this is the heroic things that happened, and these were the things that happened. But talking about specific techniques, I don't think so. We'll ref I'll refrain from doing that fine. in the story. But the again, the story. You know, we we roll in a combat swimmer, and you know as well as I do. What's the first thing you do? Pace line, right? Kick count. So you got to have an accurate speed. You can't. Do speed, time, distance from A to B without knowing how fast you go. So we put a pace line in, and we made a really nice one with five-gallon buckets and full of cement and all this stuff. And normally you do it how many times? Three in the beginning. Three. And then do you ever get back on the pace line? 
no normal team guy does unless you're absolutely made to do it because it's the worst. So guess what? I can't believe we're talking about it, but, man. I hadn't thought about that in forever. For me, knowing that our HR op is going to be a combat swimmer op, I'm like, we're leaving it in because that's what happened, right? We go and we yeah. do the pace line three or four times. And the guys start pulling it out. I was like, if you close your eyes and drop underwater, you know how many kicks it takes to get 100 yards. Exactly. At the minute you hit that kick, whatever it is, 200, 300, 400, 100, whatever it is, you immediately turn. You don't second guess it. I mean, it's like you can't see anything. So you literally have to sit there and count how many. That's all you're doing. The French count breaths. How many times uh, they breathe. Yeah. Underwater, literally for hours, you're counting. What if you forget? Well, you're uh, you yeah. don't forget. That's a problem. That's why you have a buddy, though, and you got to have a way to communicate that. If but... he's even paying attention, because normally he's sitting on the top. <laughs> yeah. He's over the top of you like this, and I mean, you got some shit bags that'll stop kicking, uh, and then your other buddy's dragging them. Uh, I can't believe funny. you're talking about diarrhea. I hadn't thought about this in forever. It's the hardest thing to do under what we do underwater. So normally you do the, you know, you get down there and you kind of confirm your number of kicks. But for the new guys, which we had a platoon full of new guys. They didn't know what their kicks were. Now, granted, they probably did it in buds. I don't know. but So they started pulling the pace line. I'm like, no, man, we're going to do that every dive. And they're looking at me like, what? You start every dive like that? We do it every dive. Some dives we did it afterwards, but every dive. So we do two dives every dive. And we did, we did 35 practice dives for that op. Yeah, which is a lot. And 35 pace dives. 70 dives total. To get ready for that up. Did y'all join? Was that a make that one big dive, like from a kick count into the into the up? No, normally they would they would go down. They do it until they were ready, and then they'd come up off surface, yeah, and we have okay. a surface interval, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. we go do whatever dive we were going to do. But we dove and dove and dove, and then we we dove in the um, we dove in the creek for I want to say it was two weeks, and then we lifted and shifted for six weeks, and went up to Newport, Rhode Island, and dove in Newport. So here now here's leadership, right? It's like in the creek in the winter time, it's cold, right? So we're coming in the tail end of summer, that kind of thing. So it really wasn't too bad. But you go to Newport, and it's Septemberish, Octoberish, you know, working on end of November, and you're wearing full quarter inch rubber. So you got a half an inch of rubber and torso to neck. Everywhere else is a quarter inch. But you're gonna. I know in my head. I'm going. We're going to Panama. The water's eighty to ninety degrees typically. So we're not going to be diving in this. So we have to have a way to make sure that we do one dive in whatever we're going to wear to do the dive up. Now, I'm not a big proponent. No one should be doing combat swimmer wearing camis over their rubber, which is a big thing. Now, we're going to wear camis in case we got to go in E&E. And it's like, man, if you go in E&E as a diver, you should be swimming somewhere. We would only transition to our camis after we got over. I don't think. Who's, who? The only time I would even think about bringing them with me and rolling them up, maybe putting them on a limpet backpack trailer or something would be if I, if I had to go do a, a recon and that was the op where I dove, did a recon, had to get back in the water and dive out. Or if you jumped in real fast, you know, but I don't, I think a diver should just have dive stuff on, right? It's cause you're talking hours and hours underwater, multiple targets sometimes. And you get all that drag on, man. It is impossible to keep a one-knot pace with camis on and everything else for three hours. You can't do it. Some guys could, but the majority of guys can't. So for me, it was 
was that. You had to, we had to figure out, what are we going to do? What, what, do we take weapons? And now guys are diving with car 15s and sniper rifles. And it's like, what are you thinking, man? It's, so I think what they do now isn't the combat swimmer that we did back then. So we're talking about 35 years ago. But it was as slick as you can be. Man, you want to be snot under the water, right? I mean, you think camis are terrifying to look at when we come through the door? When you're dressed in slick black... When we come out of the water looking like that, I mean that's some, that's the sexiest shit I thought. I'll when get on another. Water, I'll get on another tirade about what I think special forces are for and what we should use them for here in a minute. But you know, so we did the pace line. We did all these practice dives, and as we got done up at Newport, we were doing three dives a day up there typically. And people always ask like, what? Do you, how hard do you guys train for an op? I mean, this is what we're explaining right now. This for one op, this is what we had to do. So in in our normal kind of dive stuff, we do two or three weeks. Now now team two is different. Team two would had to work with the commando bear and had to work with the Germans and stuff. So you they were always better. And you had Chuck Williams and Aaron and Griffin, great divers, right? Who were the the two gurus uh, on combat swimming because they had spent most time in all the other countries diving with them. And those other divers are great. All right, let's dive into the essentials for your workout. Sure, headphones are pretty crucial, but you know what truly elevates your routine? It's called FitBod. I swear by this app every time I hit the gym because it takes all the guesswork out of planning my workouts. Every morning I wake up to a fresh notification with my new workout of the day tailored just for me. I actually just got back from the gym, had a really nice upper body day, and I am feeling it. And with over 1,000 workouts and demonstration videos, I never get bored or have to second guess any movements because FitBot shows me exactly what to do and how to do it right there in the app. So whether you're a seasoned athlete or you're just starting out, make sure to track your workouts with FitBot and let's stay up to date, guys. Score an exclusive 25% off your subscription, or you can try the app for free at fitbod.me slash TNQ. That's fitbod.me slash TNQ. Gothro was one of those guys. He spent a lot of time with us. Yeah. Guys. So, you know, for me, being a platoon dude, you know, they would yell and scream at us or me if they were support and they were helping us out and they were guiding us. But in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, that's great. But this is what we got to get ready for. So as we progressed, we came back down to Little Creek and we dove every night in Little Creek for about two weeks. Um, and we, we were trying, I was trying to use the same bearings and distances I could for that dive up that was going to happen in Panama because we had already planned it. So we had a plan from the platoon that was getting ready to go do it. And I think this is where Carly had made his choice on our platoon doing the Panama deal or that other platoon. Cause it was, it was going to be close. They would have to deploy December 5th. How'd they figure that out? Coin flip? What's that? Who went? I'll tell you. When it came down to the plan, that platoon did not believe that they could execute the combat swimmer attack. That's it. So their plan was to drive over in Zodiac. They said that's freaking honest. 60s mounted on these tripods, and they were going to shoot at these boats, which, you're SEALs. 
Seals should be swimming underwater with the psychological, psychological advantage, not driving around in a rubber boat with a machine gun on it. And so that was one of Carly's main decisions was like, okay, if the leadership of that platoon, yes, they have a dive plan. Yes, they've kind of trained to it. But this other platoon is doing nothing but trained to it. I think it was easy for him. He was kind of like, okay, yeah, you guys are deploying December 5th. Instead of you staying back, you're going to deploy, and we're going to put the onus on this other platoon. So I'm not patting my back. Man, remember, I had a lieutenant who was incredible. The AYC was incredible. And, and there I was in between them and, you know, 13 unbelievable men that, although they were all young, I was actually one of the younger guys in the platoon as the, I think I was the third youngest as the LPO. But they were all incredible and they were all great operators and they all had great attitudes and they trained hard and they never, when they did complain, it was like complaining to your best friend. It wasn't you know, some having some whiny dude who was just constantly against everything. So we we finished up with all the diving that we could do, and then General Lindsay wanted an exercise. So Rudy's now the SOCOM Sergeant Major, I guess you could say, yeah. is the E9, and Lindsay was the general down there. And anyway, long story short, he wanted to exercise this whole op plan down in Florida. So you had, you know, 10,000 special forces guys that were all doing their H-hour missions within the same week. So here I am going, okay, Florida, man, great. Nice and warm, sunny beaches, you know, all that good stuff. And then so our plan, or at least my plan was, we're going to wear the three, two, ones. Remember the, the yeah, I got some surf there. suits, right? It's just three mil, two mil, one mil. Um, we're going to wear those when we go do this dive in, uh, in Florida and Herbert. And then we'll dive that in Panama because we might be hot in Panama, but we, we won't be super hot with our thick rubber on. Right. So we went <laughs> down. I didn't even bring like a, I brought a poncho liner to sleep in. I didn't realize it got cold in Florida. What month was it? This is December. It's cold. Yeah. Like mid December. Yeah. Right. So you go down there and we went down and. We did that dive, and I think everybody hyped out. I don't think one guy it – a, it's a long dive. So we won't discuss how long because I don't want bad guys to know how long we can dive on that old bottle. When it's jammed up to 300 bar, it'll cool to 285. I don't want them to know how long, but it's long. It's a long time, a lot longer than people think you can last underwater with that thing, leaving no bubbles, right? Um, <clears throat> but with that said, now they got a different bottle, and it only goes to 200 bar, right, I think, that aluminum ball. Um, anyway, so we were in the water for over two hours and we were all hyped out. <laughs> it took me like a day to warm up. It was horrible because it was so cold down there. And then I get back and I'm in my cot with my poncho liner on with every piece of clothes I could put on because I was so cold. Are there pictures of this? Is there I have, I have for... only a few, but I can give you one or two. Um, <laughs> just me and Chris die, but. So we had, we had done all these dives, right? And we had divvied everybody up in pairs. And there wasn't one dive pair that we questioned as far as their ability to do this dive. Because there were eight boats supposed to be in water, it's, we had eight pairs. Each pair would hit one boat, and then they'd go to a different boat, and we had it all time. Oh, so so you have redundancy, yeah. right? So now you, get, you still got two charges on each boat. And if one pair doesn't make it, 
for whatever reason, they have a, you know, a rig fill up with water or a guy has a, an issue with oxygen toxicity or whatever, then there's at least going to be one charge on every boat if you have some redundancy. And that was just the expectation, man. Was everybody's diving. Everybody. You know, there was no, there was no other way around it. Anyway, we did our practice dive, and they were super happy. It went off really well. Um, and then we stayed, me and three other guys stayed down there in order to do Fulton recoveries with dummies. The, you know, the C-130 with the big feeler would pick a guy up. James Bond. Like Batman, too? Remember in Batman, they did it. Yeah, James Bond has one of those. Yeah, they do. It's um, the, the sky hook. It's yeah. snatch and grab. We just yeah. stand there and the plane flies by. So we, were, we stayed down yeah, there to do that. that. But here's what, here's what happened, what we didn't know. There was a lot of things we didn't know. We didn't know what any of the other, you know, units out there, what their involvement was in Panama. All we knew was that we were going to do the dive up. Team four had Petit Airfield, which I won't, I'm not going to discuss the merits of doing that or not, but attacking an airfield, in my opinion, is not a SEAL mission. Right. Doing a combat swimmer attack is a SEAL mission, right? But We got our asses kicked for that. Yeah. So we actually originally were going to augment Team 4 and go to the airfield, and they were going to do the dive up until cooler heads prevailed, and this is where leadership comes in. Carly was... And went over and talked to McGrath, who was a CEO of Team 4, and was like, dude, we do combat swimmer. You guys do jungle and land warfare. That's your bailiwick. Let us do the combat swimmer. And what that did was separate us from Team 4, which I thought was great, because our TTP, or at least our hand signals, weren't even the same. So how can you operate together? You know, you can't. Now it's all kind of standardized, but back then it wasn't. So that's why we ended up practicing so much for the dive op. And that decision, I didn't know that that decision hadn't been made until really late. Carly was just banking on that decision actually coming to fruition. So um, anyway, we get a call, and we didn't realize all the stuff that had happened down there with Adam Curtis and all that stuff. And anyway, President Bush signed the op plan, and it was like, go. We were still down in Florida. We couldn't get a flight out of Florida, so I think we rented a car, drove to like Atlanta, got on a plane, flew up to the team area, and what we didn't realize is we've been down there for four days. When the when the rest of the platoon had gotten up there, Carly put him in isolation and told the team that we had screwed up so bad on this exercise that he was considering disbanding us and all this other stuff because they're operational security, right? Which is something that most people don't practice. But Carly was serious about it, and it was like, you guys are going to stay in that room, and you're not going to tell anybody what's going on, and you're not telling anybody you're going down there and what you're going down there to do, and you're going to let the rest of this team think you're a bunch of dirtbags, and they're going to treat you poorly, which is typical for team guys. No, we can turn it up quick. You know. turn that mouth on quick. <laughs> It's so we it's unbelievable get up, how fast we can do that. We get up there, the four of us that were still down in Florida, and they took us literally. They were like dudes with guns, and I'm, I'm talking about dudes with guns, a quarter deck guy. And he walks us up in an isolation room. He goes, you know, have a nice day. You know, and I'm just like, what? And they tell us the whole story, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So it was then that I told them exactly what we were going to do. They didn't know that we were going to do a dive out. They just had practiced X amount of time. So... Anyway, long story short, that's when I was like, okay, this is why we've been doing what we're doing. This is what's happening. We're getting off the of C-141, and that night, we're getting in the water, and we are diving on these boats. 
So the next morning, we get everything ready. That night, seven pallets of ammunition, law rockets, everything else show up with this 141. It's all of Team 4 on one side, and Team 2 are 16 dudes. Y'all can and some... see across and see all that, right? What's that? The airfield. Yeah, once we got down there. Yeah, so yeah. we get on the plane with, with those guys, and my guys, all they did was jam their mags, you know, because we had, we had already trained for war. I made sure my guys, whenever we did anything, if they were going to carry, I made them go out and get dummy grenades when we first started land warfare. I made them go out and we're going we're gonna to get smokes and we're going to pull the fuses out, but we're going to get smokes and you're going to wear them if you're supposed to be carrying smokes. We're going to get dummy, you know, uh, 40 mic mic rounds and everybody's carrying a box of 60 ammo. And we just had this, so no matter what, when you went to war, and so I learned a lesson when, from some other guys who had gone and done some stuff and they weren't ready and they never trained with the full combat load and so their buoyancy was off and when they jumped out of the plane they drowned oh my god because they were too heavy too heavy and they sank right so one of the first things i did was when we were in land warfare back in june-ish uh, may june was get all your stuff on here's what you're gonna wear jump in the water and we were low tide over where SDVs always put in when they're in the creek. And there's sort of five feet of water, but it's like you need to be neutrally buoyant. So you can go down if you need to, or but you're, it takes very little effort to stay on the surface. And we, we had closed cell phone. We were running H gear. We weren't running cool chicken plates and, you know, carriers and all this other stuff they have now. And I'm, I don't even know the lingo anymore, but we were just running old H gear. But everybody had the right buoyancy without their life jacket inflated can't use your life jacket as a buoyancy compensator because if you need to stay on the surface and you're neutrally buoyant with your life jacket inflated then it's not saving your life right especially if you can't move and keep yourself on the surface so it was all hey, if we're going to be anywhere near the water we're wearing a life jacket but your your gear has to be good to go and you have to wear everything that you're going to wear so we trained the whole time with you can't believe how deadly that is right there everything the four dudes coming out of the water yeah what how much training goes into that what that is because like, i'm not that anymore i mean you, you can't yeah. just to hold that to do that much training to put all that attention to detail for the one thing which is it's the way it should be right that's what, that's what we do so we get on the plane and we're sitting on one side and our guys just stuffed their mags with bullets but there were guys on the other side that were lined up on that wall that were putting together h gear how can you succeed in combat when you're you don't even have your h gear set up you don't even have your combat load set up you know so their leadership was poor our leadership norm carley ed you know lieutenant simpkins uh our leadership was good in that we trained for war we trained from day one running around with a full combat load. When we dove, we didn't dive with all this extra junk. It was, it was as streamlined as we could get, and then and that was it. We carried a pistol, and we carried a 686 chrome, chrome. Smith & Wesson Python, and everybody's like, you guys are dumb, and it's like, okay. Well, have you ever tried? So your buddy, you're diving, and your buddy goes belly up, oxygen toxicity, whatever, and he stops, and you gotta get him to the surface. So you, you get his life jack going, you get, and now you're on the surface and you're, you're trying to hold him up and maybe trying to do CPR or whatever, and a boat comes up. If you got your SIG or Beretta or something that's a, you know, a, 
a regular magazine-fed pistol, what happens if it doesn't fire? You got to jack the slide back. What happens if a Colt Python don't fire? You just pull the trigger again because a new, a new round's coming in, like the, a revolver? in the cylinder. Yeah, revolver. revolvers out of the water because all you have to do is squeeze the trigger. And the great thing for for that was, especially on the Smith and Wesson man, is we just take it, we pull the we had Packmeyer grips or whatever, and we just pull them off, throw them in diesel fluid, and you know, pick them up the next dive, clean them up, spray them off, put the grips back on, and go dive, and they never rusted. It was awesome, but we needed a weapon. Didn't carry a so a revolver. I'm just, sure these are specialized because a, a regular no, revolver wouldn't no. fire in the water, would it? Why not? Not. I'm not talking about not? it firing underwater. underwater. I'm talking about if on you're top. on the surface and a boat were to come up and they're trying to pull you into the boat, the bad guys. Okay. You could at least, as the guy with the your buddy, you could at least shoot that okay. guy and then try to get away. Yeah. But you're really vulnerable as a combat swimmer. You can work that. You need to be. You need to be underwater, and that was the thing, right? I still have to hold my buddy. And shoot, and I can't do that if I'm using a SIG or mm-hmm. some other gun because if it doesn't go off, then that was the biggest thing is the right? revolvers. Under, the, the, but we had the so many guys telling us that school. we're what are you diving weapons for in the first place? Number one, and number two, why are you diving one of those things? You know, but it was we had thought about it, we had thought through it all. So anyway, we got down there, and it was I don't know eight ish in the morning when we got into Rodman. And I can remember Joe Lacaz was a CMC down there. And Joe was like, Randy, I know you're not chief, but you're the platoon, you're the platoon oh, you know, senior enlisted. He goes, I'm going to treat you that way while you're here. Just don't screw me. In other words, your guys go here. Don't mess none of this up. We just were under that big awning down there at the, at the unit and had all our gear laid out. You know, that was the best, best we had. We didn't have a place to put our heads other than in the dirt, you know. But for us, it was like no problem. So what was next, right? It was... Put the dive rigs together, right? Now, 10.30 in the morning, there we are, me and Chris, and we sucked them down, and the bag held, and we knew the O-rings were good, and I'll divulge a secret. You're supposed to inflate the bag and squeeze and make sure that under positive pressure it doesn't leak, but we did. We had dove that stupid thing 70 times, you know, so we're like, it sucks down, it's good. Did you try to do... And me and him dove rigs. perfect with that rig, it'll kill you. Well, I, I'm not... I'm just saying our confidence was really high. I get it. No, I'm and and in retrospect, both he and I were like, "Well, that was stupid," and he was right. But we got away with it. So got all the rigs ready, and then we started looking. And there's only one boat across the way. It was supposed to be eight. What we didn't know is the night before, seven boats went up through the canal to Cologne, and they pulled them out of the water. I wonder why that was. So somebody died, y'all. Yeah. I think so. Right. I think I think so, 100%. Sounds like somebody dimed y'all. I mean, I'm saying us. I'm talking about us and the other 13,000 dudes that yeah, showed yeah, up yeah, for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. You huh. know, It was all special ops. It was a, it was a SOCOM event. No conventional and troops. And someone took y'all's boat? No, no, no. The, the patrol boats that we were supposed to sink across the canal. So yeah, we're yeah, on we the south side of the canal in the, in the south side by the Bridge of America. We're on the south side of the canal on Rodman Naval Facility, which is where the Unit 8 was. And on the north side of the canal, so a mile and a half away, maybe a mile away, that's where the patrol boats were. That's where Noriega's boats were. There was eight. But the morning we showed up, there was only one. Mm. Like the day before, there was eight. Mm. This morning, there was one. So then, so you got, you got eight dive pairs, all totally ready capable, to go, ready, ready to, go, go. to go. Ready to go. So who do you, who you, do you get, pick? You get one boat, and then it's like, who do you pick? 
right? So Team 2 hadn't been in combat since Vietnam. And you got me and Ed Coughlin. He's UIC, and I'm the senior enlisted. And I remember he and I, we, we were over in some... We were in some room in the unit, and he's just like, what do we do? And I go, Ed, I, I really don't care what you are going to do, but I know I'm going. Because I am not sitting over here twiddling my thumbs with two of my dudes trying to conduct a dive op. I go, I don't view myself as that kind of a leader. I'm not a general, right? I'm not a strategic guy. I'm a platoon dude who's supposed to be operating and destroying the enemy's infrastructure. So I'm going. And he's like, well, I'm going decision made it wasn't because we had six other dive pairs that couldn't do it it was because we had me and him and we weren't gonna not yeah. do it we were the ones so if a decision had to be made that changed the event and changed the outcome of the event it was on us so we had to be there you can't armchair quarterback something like this you know you got to be there so that's why he and i dove chris die was my dive buddy tk upley was his dive buddy so of course they dove we didn't, we didn't go pick the next two senior dudes and say, hey, yeah, because you guys are the next two senior guys. No, it's dive pair integrity, right? Chris and I dove all those dives together, so we knew exactly what we were going to yeah. do, and that comes into play. With Who was the, the pilot, you or him? Me. The first uh, – that was not – that was because of that last comment, was if something screws up, I'm not turning around and blaming an E-5. Yeah. Is that what Chris was? So I, I drove, and if something happens, it's my fault. Right? If we didn't get there, it's my fault. Yeah. If we got compromised, it's my fault, not his fault. And I'm not going to sit there in the rear with the gear when they're, you know, chastising us or, God forbid, he's dead and I'm not going, oh, it's his fault. So that onus is on me. Right? So I, I need to be the guy that's making that decision. So TK now drove the other pair, but TK was a savant. When it came to driving a compass board, man, TK could. He's good, huh? That boy was good, like super good. And Ed was super bad. <laughs> so Ed was like, yeah, he's going to drive. But Ed would still make the decision. So I chose to drive, not, you know, Chris was totally capable, so it, it wouldn't have mattered. But um, anyway, long story short. Did y'all, did y'all swap off or were you always driving? I always drove. Yeah, yeah. What are you driving? Oh, the compass no, board. Was, uh, so it's just a it, back then. Now they have these nice boards, but I had we had a little wooden board with a Benz compass. It was a French-made compass full of kerosene or something, and glowed in the dark. And you had a watch and a depth gauge. So it's calling it a tag. You're board. not driving anything. You're so holding you're, something. you're holding something. We call it driving. driving. <laughs> but yes, you're holding an attack board. You're following. You're a, not actually driving. Well, like what a do you do when you drive something? down a road? Yeah. Man, you follow the I lines mean, in a road. Technically, I mean, because you can move it like a so steering wheel. I guess you're driving the bearing well, on, on the James compass board. James Bond, 1965. Yes. They had these Thunderball. Little, that was Thunderball. They had these um, little. Underwater jet skis. Scooters, yeah, driving. man. And that's so cool. That's but what happens when the battery runs out? But that's not what you're driving. No. Yeah, you made... have a wooden board. And you're kicking. With a compass. And your all that stuff makes kicking. bubbles. All that stuff makes bubbles. The stuff that we use doesn't. We can sneak up on a fish and tap, tap them on. The, I've done, we've done that. So it takes a lot. Now, Aaron Griffin and, and Chuck Williams, man, would beat us on the head. If you let any, even any little bubble come out of your mask, that's bad. Especially, so you're on the target and a bubble comes out. Yeah. Somebody's standing up there and goes, hey, there's a bubble. That's either a turtle or it's somebody trying to sink my boat. So I'm going to drop a grenade. But, 
you know, they drove that into us and we trained that way, man. We trained to clear our mask without leaving any bubbles and you don't ever want a bubble to leave. How do you clear your mask without leaving a bubble? I'm not telling you. It's a secret. Oh, okay. I respect that. Stick your finger up in there. <laughs> Stick Get your finger up in here and it. water comes down. <laughs> right when it gets there, you let your finger out. You can't believe there's a method for it. There is a method There for is it. a method. So the day goes on. Lindsay was getting, I guess, uh, nervous. And so he was like, we need to delay the divers from getting in the water. Because you got to remember, once we go in the water, it's, it's over. That boat is blowing up. Because they can't call you back. It's not like an underwater, underwater microphone going, hey, dudes, yeah, the dop's canceled. It's not happening. So he delayed us a half an hour. We had enough time built into the plan to make that work, but it was going to be close. So we used... Uh, You're talking about tidal, tidal shift, right? What's that? The tidal shift? Well, I'm just talking about just a timing period to get to the target from where we were getting in the water. Yeah. You know, losing a half an hour is losing a thousand yards, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. So it wasn't... It wasn't good, but we had enough time, but we knew we were going to be close. And so it's kind of like, what do we, what do, we do? So we didn't, we didn't have a limpet mine because it was an aluminum hulled boat. And limpet mine's magnetic. And we couldn't use the stud drivers. They have a little tab and you could stud drive it in there. But tungsten little thing. If it's cold iron, it's not a big boat. It's only 70-ish feet long. The people on the boat would hear that. So you can't do that. So I'm like... I think we're going to just take the limpet backpack. We're going to take a haversack, which has got 20 pounds of C4. A limpet has, what, three-ish, two-ish, not a lot. And we're going to slap it on there, and then we're going to pull two socks out, and that's where we're going to put the clock and the safe and arming device, and then the bit of explosive, the safe and arm, or the, the debt has to go in. And we'll slip it down in there, and that's going to be our bomb. And that's what we... That was in the plan from day one, and it was just because... The ordinance people had given me these uh, experimental digital clocks. Experimental digital clock, you could arm it, and it had an internal 30-minute safe and arming device. In other words, if you armed it at 30 minutes before the target was supposed to go off and one second, you were good. If you armed it at 29 minutes and 59 seconds, it was not going to go off because there's an internal safety mechanism that... You know, if you arm it inside of 30 minutes, it just it won't go off. Mm -hmm. So it's, it gives you time to get away. But our Mark 39 safe and arming device had a 15-minute. It was a mechanical clock. When you arm that, it would not let the explosive train align so the signal could get from the source to the cap for 15 minutes. So you could get away. All right, so you're confident in the office, at the dinner table, and even on the dance floor. But can you keep it going when you get back to the bedroom? With Hims, you can get access to medication to ensure that you are always treated. So you can keep that confidence going all day and all night. Hims has changed the game by offering affordable, easy, and discreet access to treatments. No more awkward doctor's visits, no judgment, just simple online solutions to a pretty common issue. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash TNQ. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash TNQ for your personalized ED treatment options. That's hymns.com slash TNQ. 
Prescriptions require an online consultation with the healthcare provider who will determine if you're appropriate. Restrictions apply and see website for details and important safety information. Subscription is required and price varies based on product and subscription plan. We had, a 15, underwater. we had a 15 minute window. That seems oh, we made it. So <laughs> it is weird. But we had a, so I told Chris and Chris. That's I, Navy. That's Navy right there. Chris is like, what are we going to do? And I go, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to arm that stupid clock, the big one, the one with the 30 minute. We're going to arm that at like 35. And then as long as we can make it to the target and more with more than 15 minutes to spare, then we'll arm the Mark 39 and, and so jet. You were swimming with an armed, with, with, with it was already ticking? That was if that was the contingency plan. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Right? Because that changes everything. If you're rolling down, if you're kicking out with a with no, a no, 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 it was just a contingency right. plan. <laughs> oh, so I will much, spare man. you all the politics of us getting in the water. But in order for us to get in the water and dive on the dive, we had to be on the other side of the canal because at full ebb and with the mirror floors locks open, it could be up to seven knots of current. That's what I'm talking about. Going down that's the canal. Huge. Thirty minutes. So you an can't. Hour, that's huge. So you can't get a. You can't dive across and expect to make this work. So we had to get in zodiacs and motor across and get on that side. So there's a mangrove, kind of. Let's call it northwest of where the target area was, and we, you know, we got in our boats and went on bag right before we got in the boats, and so we could breathe them down and make sure everything's going to function. And in that time that it took us to get over there, how long was that? 10 minutes maybe this is right by like the the oh yeah we're we're uh, we're probably a thousand yards away from the bad guys but is this right by the canal mm -hmm. in panama this is city? the panama canal in near panama city so like where they have the bleachers yeah. have you been down there since no i've That's been there once. i don't think i should go down there no, no. <laughs> anyway but yes it's, i've been there it's this side of the bridge of america but this side of miraflores locks so um anyway so we got over the other side right at the right time and they let uh tk and ed out because carly was in their boat and they let tk and ed out our motor wouldn't idle right so while we were going across we needed more than an idle but when we got across we couldn't we didn't want anybody revving the motor because the bad guys would hear the sound. But you got to to make it run because it kept farting. Because it yeah, wouldn't yeah. idle. So even though I said... I bet that was chirping you because of you're a motor guy. Yeah, but they let them in, and then they came back and got us and dragged us out just outside the mangrove and put us in the water. But we were only in like five feet of water because the mangrove, it didn't drop down towards the piers and stuff until 100 yards out. So we're like five feet of water. And we're all ready to go. So Chris and I just looked at each other, and he's like... I'm like, eh? and we just started diving. And we weren't like one minute into this stupid dive and we hit an underwater tree, you know, some tree had fallen yeah, or yeah. something. So we hit, and it's like, <sighs> and I'm just like, okay, don't panic. Not panic because I'm afraid, but panic because how do I get through this? Yeah. And I feel the buddy line, because I think Chris was on my right. I feel the buddy line getting wrapped up. And he grabbed my wrist, got on my back, grabbed my other wrist and was like, okay. You could kind of mm -hmm, talk yeah. like a deaf person talks with. So I was, mm -hmm, and we just kicked on through that thing, got out the other side. He unwrapped it, got next to me, and we went. But we had to go deep. I went down to 25 feet, which we could back then. Now it's 20 or 19.9 or something. Um, 
but I like diving deep because my buoyancy was easier to control. But number two, the water was super bioluminescent. Oh, really? So the, you know, the little creatures are like, like fireflies, and there's billions of them. And so it's like you're like a big glow-in-the-dark tube in the water, and I didn't want... It literally looks like the northern lights every time yeah. you take your fin, man. I didn't want anybody up there to be able to see us. So I'm diving 25 feet, and I remember having to put my hand in front of my compass so I could just see the bearing. And it wasn't a really long shot. It was maybe a 500-yard shot to get to the pier that we had to go around to get on the other side to where the boat was. So was it a long dive to get there? No, but it's just part of the deal, right? So we, I, I literally, because I had to put us in the water in a different place than we had planned, I would have a different bearing, so I had to take a bearing, and I just dove that bearing. Ended up hitting the pier right where I needed to. Oh, you did? Yeah. And then we ended up staying just inside the first set did of pilings. You know, the bottom of it? Were you scared shitless counting your kicks? No. See, that was that's the thing, right? So I try to tell people, like when we t- teach the college kids and everything else, and it's like, you need to make your training so hard yeah. that when you do the, the, <clears> the, <throat> the live op or the play the game or whatever, it's easier than training was. And so for us, the dives that we had done, and we would have other team guys try to find us on those yeah. dives. Like the training dives, it'd be like and as many team guys as we could get to try to find us. That added a level. You don't want a team guy to find you, you out of combat swim attack in the, in the creek. worse than the enemy. You know? And so it's like, it's just it's bragging rights, right? The next day, what's going to happen to the team? <laughs> they suck, you know? And that's worse than... freaking drop ours on, dude. You can't that's worse than getting killed by the bad guy. So, so is Ed next to you the whole time? Chris die, and Ed is five minutes ahead of us. Okay. So he and TK, when they hit the pier, they decide to stay on the outside of the pier and free dive it, you know, with bearings. With me, I'm kind of like I'm worried about my compass spinning. So this is a 700-yard long pier. and had a cement, like, triangle thing right in the middle so you couldn't just swim through the piers you had to kind of go around we just stayed inside the piling so i, I kind of pier swam and we were kind of over under Did and it see? was maybe 10 feet Check. so kind of diving and then we get so we had to go 700 instead of taking 21 minutes that took like 30 minutes because you're not you're not diving your normal pace you know so now we had this 500 yards and this so we're i'm looking at the time and i'm like man we we need to get there but Got down to the far end of that pier, which is deep inside the the pier system where the boats were. And I get to the rudder of a freighter that was sitting there because I could just see it off to my right because there was super bright lights. And the super bright lights were coming from where the targets were. The They had a big notch about 400 feet wide, and they had two big cement floating piers that you could drive a six by down on. They had these bladders underneath, it was huge. Maybe 60, 75 feet deep, and then 400 feet long, and it was two of them, so 200 feet apiece. And that's where all the boats, that the pilot boats that would go in and out to they bring the there. ships, they would all be there. But they were all little wooden hulled, you know, little single screw things that, you know, it looks like a play toy, but, um, but that's where all the activity was, and it was it was lit up. There was four rows of four fluorescent lights, four hundred feet long. It was like daylight. So we're underneath this pier. I'm not compass boards in here. I'm not even using it. And I get to the end, and I can see the rudder of this. You know, it's a little freighter, not a big one. I see the rudder, and I'm just like, 
what is all that light? So I kind of brought myself up and just kind of used refraction. And I'm like, wow, that's the target area. And it's that bright. Now we're running out of time, you know, and I'm like, how do I, how do I do this? So what I could have done was just go down all the way in the dark and gone underneath the floating pier. But I'm like, man, I need to cut some corners here. So I had Chris stay a little deeper. I literally got on that rudder and did like a 45 and just free swam it, you know, maybe six, eight feet down so I could kind of see. And then we got underneath that floating pier and started to go down towards the target. And you could see little shadows. And every time I saw a shadow, I'd go over and see if it's a pilot boat or the target. Because the target I hadn't seen yet, you know. So after about the third pilot boat, I'm like, where is this thing, man? Because it was there when we got in the water. So where is it? And so used refraction again, and I could actually see it. And I'm like, oh, man, that's like 50 yards down. So go back underneath the floating pier, and right then something was going on. It sounded like somebody was dropping a 55-gallon drum full of gas on that floating pier. Like, boom, like a really loud boom. And there was, I'll say, three or four of them. And I had no clue what was going on. Was that what it was? What happened? No, what happened was I think a seventh group, Got in a firefight with somebody, and that was either 40 Mike Mike or that oh. was them hucking grenades. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because right? the airfield and everything had kicked off too, right? Yeah, so uh, for HR was one in the morning, and they were going to uh, back it up to 1245 instead of one. But our charges weren't going off to one. So it's about 1230-ish time frame. So we're in that period where, man, we need to be yeah. arming that one clock, the main clock. And I think we had like five minutes to spare. But I was listening to that, and I, I didn't know what that was, but TK and Ed were closer, I think, at that time than we were. Um, and I think maybe one or two had gone in the water. And so they had felt it, but I didn't. I had been far enough away, I think, that I didn't feel anything. So it was either 40 Mike Mike or just a hand grenade, not a concussion grenade. I don't think the bad guys thought or knew we were coming. Yeah. But... So we kept going, and we ended up getting the target first. So uh, how that happened, I don't know. We don't even know now? But I, we got to the target first by one minute. Because <laughs> Chris and I, we got there, and I remember there's a big shadow. So I got over, and I'm like, that's probably it. But you always identify it, right? What yeah. do you do? Tactical peak. Tactical peak, right? So instead of breaking the surface, I just I wanted to look for the whole number, P202. Is that what it was? 202? And I'm just like, I, so I put one hand under the boat, one hand under the pier, and I kind of let myself up, and I, I wanted to make sure I didn't lose my buoyancy and surface. And there was a dude on the back of those swift boats that had a little ladder and a step, you know, like a like a step stool or whatever. And there was a dude with one foot on that and one foot on the pier. On the pier and on the boat. And I'm looking up at his... Straight between his legs, freaking blow his ass up. <laughs> and and you I'm, imagine <laughs> that dude? I mean, he's like looking down at a great white down there, right? And I'm being not having any freaking clue that you... That was my favorite part of the story. So I remember seeing that, and I'm like, I go back down, and I look at Chris, and I'm like, that's the right thing. And I'm in my head, I'm like, man, you got 30 minutes to live, dude. But Chris didn't waste any time, man. He had the, the charge on his back, went right under, grabbed the shaft. That was our plan. And we Is that what y'all just hung it? Unclipped the straps from the backpack, and we clipped it in front of the strut. So in case they started moving, it would at least hang on until those straps broke and wouldn't get caught up in the screw. So he armed everything. We were, like I said, we had five minutes to spare. He armed the big clock, armed the safe and arming, and then uh, I checked it. 
and we were gone back under the pier and down we went but there was no charge on the other side so after I, i'm sitting there thinking i wonder if those booms and stuff were them getting compromised you know so i'm like we need to get out of here just in case they had gotten compromised and they're looking for divers so that was the other thing is i was supposed to get to the end and just dive straight out 1100 yards because that's how long that other pier was and i'm like i'm not doing that now i'm gonna stay under this pier which was challenging because every hundred yards it had a cement wall we had to go around so if you such a pain if you and chris got there first did ed get there while you were there no we never saw them this whole dive we never saw them there was a drop dead time too right yeah, so if we had gotten in the water on time, we would have planted the charges and we would have made it down to the end of that 1,100-yard pier. And at the end of that pier, there was a dolphin, which is nothing but a bunch of pilings that you could actually get in down deep and go up and do a peek inside of it because by the surface, all the logs, the telephone poles are really close together. So unless someone's looking in there, they're not oh, going to yeah. see you. But we had taken a... I want to say it was a, it wasn't an embitter. Maybe it wasn't embitter, but we had taken a, a radio in a bag, which we were having problems with those bags leaking. And of course, you know, my radio was soaked with water anyway, but we were supposed to be there well before H hour. And we were going to call Carly and say, Hey, charges are on the boat, but now we're way behind time. So we made it maybe two or three of those hundred yard pieces when the time was coming five till midnight i'm i look at chris and i'm like let's so we went way back underneath the pier and there was a underneath the pier there was a cement you know piece of cement and had a perfect ledge and we sat on that ledge and we went off bag and got out of the water torso wise because we're you know we're 300 yards away from 40 pounds of demo and we didn't know if there's going to be any other any other explosions going off so we're worried about our chest cavities kind of you know getting crushed but we didn't you know we, we had no experience at that point so was that the right decision i don't know tk and ed did the same thing so oh, they did? it was it was the right decision so in my where book. were they like do you know they were literally like a minute behind it. they were they were 30 40 yards behind us all the time did, did after they, did the they even come up and plant What's that? Did yeah, yeah, no, that, like uh, oh, literally, okay. we went under and started going that way, and they must have just gotten there, like and a minute said, hey, later. I saw your charge because when we when we looked at the time, you know, when we did the time at the end of the dive, like what time did you get there? What time I get? It was a minute apart. See, I bet that would if I if I was the first dive pair and I showed up and there was already a bomb on the boat, that that's pretty intimidating. That that's some pucker factor. If you were supposed to be the first ones to plan. Well, plus all the stuff that was going off, maybe they thought we got compromised. You got compromised. You know, so on the way out, which is what they thought. They're like, "What's going on?" But they were closer to that stuff than we were. But long story short, is we ended up going all the way down. And I remember there was uh, these two huge in the corner where those two sections came together. There was two huge, like ten foot diameter pilings that held up that corner. We were way down in behind him, and I looked at Chris, and I'm like, hey, let's go. Let's go check out, see what's happening. <coughs> Bad decision, right? So we, <laughs> we start, it's just like in the, other, in the movies, you know, where you can't hear anything, and then all of a sudden you're out of the water, and you can hear everything. And it was like, man, everything was going off, like everything, because we didn't know H. Howard got moved up 15 minutes. So everything is going off. Commandancy is getting pounded by the AC-130, and it sounded like, 
everything breaking loose. And Chris and I, both our eyes were like this. And we looked at each other. I'm like, we went back down, went, you know, until five minutes before the hour, got out of the water. And there was so much going on, we never heard the shot. We were only 300 yards away. So did the guy die? We never heard. Well, yes. <laughs> However, um, so would you just come walking up off when you came out? out no, of man, we'll get to that. But oh. I didn't. We didn't hear the shot. Like a water shot's really muffled, right? Yeah. yeah. I thought we'd feel it. I mean, there was so much going on and so many concussions going on. We couldn't tell if the, if it went off, but it did. Right, exactly on time, it blew up, and that boat like came out of the water. And then settled back down, and 30 seconds later, it was gone. So. And there were people on the boat? 12. So, word I got was that six lived, six died. But I don't know if that's true. So, we get back on bag, and we go down to the end of that pier, and I get up in the dolphin and pull my radio out to call them and say, hey, you know, you already know that either, either it was successful or it wasn't. This whole time in my head, I'm thinking, great. First combat swimmer attack, SEALs have ever done, and it didn't work. Because of experimental clock, I was going to blame it on that and all sorts of other stuff. But oh, you already had I didn't. I did, yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's the thoughts that go through your head, up. right? The clock must not have worked, you know? So I go up to call them, water's in the radio, so I go back down, and I'm like, all right, let's go. From there, we were supposed to dive out 12 minutes, over 12 minutes, and back 12 minutes. So 12 divided by 3 is 4, so it's 400 yards out. 400 over and 400 back in to get around the dry dock area because it was just a mess in the images. But we didn't know that they had opened the locks and it was full ebb. And so that current kind of comes in where the, all the piers and everything were and it shoots out. So our 400 yards that we dove, 12 minutes, we ended up going 900 yards almost to Rodman. We were right in the middle of the canal, like right in the middle of where the ships would go. And there was some dude who was in a freighter that was making a beeline to get out. So he was up towards Mayor Flores, and he wanted to get out. And he was hauling the mail. So we're diving. We make our left turn. We're diving. And I start hearing, you know, engine noise behind us. And in my head, I'm like, okay, how deep's a freighter? You know? And I'm like, I remember seeing some pictures. I know an aircraft carrier is like 48 feet or 50 feet deep. I mean, they're deep. I go, a freighter can't be that deep. And our excursion is five minutes at 50 feet, right? You're allowed five minutes at 50 feet. So I'm like, I guess I need to think about doing an excursion, right? So I start, I'm, again, diving at 25 feet. And I start going deeper. And Chris kept pulling me back up. And then I'd be like, uh, going deeper. And he pulled me back up. But that noise is getting louder behind us, you know? And like the third time, man, I stopped and I literally got straight up and down and I tapped on his ear and he's like, oh, that's the, that's what he said. We're like, oh, and we both straight down to 50 feet. And we weren't there for more than 30 seconds, man. And it was dark, but it got really dark, like super dark because yeah, that freighter is now over the top of us. And what you got to worry about on the freighter is not the first two thirds. It's the last two thirds where all the main circ pumps are that suck up the water to cool the engines and all that stuff. And so I'm like, how big are those holes? You know, I mean, they're big enough, they're big enough to suck you in and chop you up.
Attention military members, veterans, and even their families. Navy Federal Credit Union is here to serve you with their member-owned, not-for-profit approach with low fees, great rates, and resources to help you crush your financial goals. Navy Federal is dedicated to putting their members at the heart of everything they do. Join Navy Federal today and discover the benefits that can save you more than $470 per year just by banking with them. Their average credit card APR is 6% lower than the industry average and a market-leading regular savings rate of nearly twice the industry average. Your money just works harder for you there. Plus, with their easy mobile app, you can redeem rewards as soon as you earn them. Don't miss out on their low intro APR offers. Go visit NavyFederal.org to learn more and start saving today. Navy Federal is insured by the NCUA. Membership is required. Admissions and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. So we're at 50 feet, and I'm like, do I go deeper? And I didn't want to go deeper because I, you know, I'm like, well, it's not touching me now. I can't feel it rubbing on me, so I think we're okay. And I, I, I do believe that if we're five feet away, we wouldn't get sucked up because this thing's moving, right? If it was stationary, maybe. But So we're going, and we're going. We're diving, this thing, and then it got super loud. And right then, on the drager for the mouthpiece, there's a head strap. What do most guys do? They don't put it on. Throw that away, right? They take it off. They, they don't dive with it ever. Because normal dive, you know, teeth holds the mouthpiece in, and you don't need it. But it's there for this exact reason, because when you're under a ship and the main circ pumps are running, the vibrations are so bad, your teeth can't grip hard enough to keep that mouthpiece in your mouth. So you got to zip that mount, that, you know, strap in there to keep the mouthpiece in. And I'm... I was just getting ready to tell Chris, you know, I was going to grab his. And so I grabbed mine and zip, zip. And right then I hear zip, zip. And both had the same thought the exact same time. And then you could hear it. It was so loud. And that thing went. And I knew it had passed us. What did it sound like? When, oh, it's just, uh, just huge vibration. I mean, this engine noise, but muffled. It's kind of a. Just no way of explaining it otherwise. Yeah, you know? it's just a. Like when you watch the movie Titanic, does it sound like that going that down? Oh man, you can't describe this. It's like deafening loud. It's own little, and it's super it's vibration. Noise. But I knew that when we did this number, where we swayed back and yeah, forth. Yeah, I knew yeah, the screw had gone over yeah, our heads. And so now it's like, okay, I, I'm out 900 yards out. I'm 500 yards past where I should be. I'm probably almost in Rodman. And I thought in my head, man, should I should I just surface and go to Rodman? Or should I go to my extract? But I decided not to go to Rodman because before we, as soon as it got nightfall, about every 20 yards, they put two Marines, young guys, along the fence. And they were just like, I'm thinking to myself, two divers coming out of the water, all darked up, young kids, you know, they'll probably shoot and then ask questions later. So I'll just go to my extract. But I knew that I was so far out. I'm like, I made a decision at that point. I'm like, I'm going to surface and take a bearing on the extract point, and I'm just going to go and dive as hard as I can to get there. And <clears throat> when you're that deep and you're trying to surface quickly, that bag fills up. Once that bag fills up, 
the air is going to come out the mouthpiece, but I'm in the wake of this thing, so I'm like, I don't care. So we were like two Poseidon missiles, man. We came, I probably came out of the water in my belly. And I let the bag kind of let that all flow out before I came back in the water and then turned around, took a bearing, and we went back down 25 feet and started that. How far out were you? 900 yards. Still 900? It took us like 29 minutes to get back to the pier. My gosh. Most people don't understand what you're talking about. Should have been 12. In that that rig, there's a bag. Imagine a hot water bottle. A breathing bag. If you you had one of those back in the day. Whoopee cushion. Whoopee cushion. Something like that. It looks like that. So when you exhale, that that has to go through the sodazorb scrubber and then into that bag. Because when you exhale, your lungs get smaller. The volume is a little smaller because it gets some of the oxygen you get, or uh, CO2 gets scrubbed out. But the rest of it has to go somewhere. And that kind of actually compensates for your loss of buoyancy it's more buoyant so you stay neutral it's like having an exterior lung yeah so when you get back are they like dude you did it yeah so i'll i'll get to that so we we end up getting to where the end of the pier system was and we're actually supposed to extract a little farther out but i'm like we're far enough out i think it's time for me to surface and and just see if I see Zodiac sitting out in the open where they should be. And I I was going to get in the dolphin that was there, but I didn't. And I'm just surfacing, and I see a I see a outboard motor. And so I go back down real quick, and I'm like, I'm like, oh wait a minute, it's probably our dudes. So I go back up, and sure enough, I see the H on the whatever it is. The, the drive shaft portion of the motor. I see the H on there. It's our boats. And they're under, kind of half under the pier, tucked in there. And so I had to grab Chris, pull oh, him you up. Swam right in. I swam right to the boat. They they didn't want to sit out there in the middle of the no, out in the out in the open yeah, yeah, yeah. by these big circular pilings. So they stayed under there because there were still bad guys up on top. So anyway, here we are. So I surface. Chris surfaces. Mark Dodd, big Mark Dodd, yeah. is sitting up on the tran- on the tube. And I had to splash him because there's a lot still going on. And those guys are all locked and ready to go. And he turns around and he goes, there they are. And he grabbed Chris by the, um, the back strap of second the arm. second arm yeah. and yanked him right out of the water. Like Mark Dodd's strong, like strong, like twice as strong as I am. He yanked Chris right out of the water. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have to help a little bit. Nope. He grabbed me, man, and whoosh, like a fish threw me in a boat. And we took off and started heading over to Rodman. And one of the SBU boats came up next to us. They did a little bona fides, and we kept on going. And that was the end of the dive. But, you know, it took us a second to get off bag and everything else. And everybody's like, hey, man, good job. And I'm like, it worked? And they're like, yeah, it worked. And I'm like, wow. Damn right. Damn right, dude. So we had never done a combat swimmer attack up to that point. When I say we, Naval Special Warfare, haven't done one since. I've not blown anything else up since. That's crazy. Weird. Day later, though, we did send all the dudes that hadn't really dove on that dive up or supported that dive up up north to Cologne because they said there was maybe some boats in the water and they were going to dive on them because we had other ops that we had to do. So we kept half the platoon on the south side, sent the other half to the north side, and they didn't have to dive or anything, but they actually flew up there on... Blackhawks or Hueys to get up to the north side, and they they spent like a week and a half up there 
when did word sniper come on that our guys got hurt eric got so as soon as we got out at the sbu pier we're getting out of the boats and um we we run up i'm, I'm sitting on my cot and there's there's three guys shadows i could see I'm, i didn't really know they were there until i'm uh getting taking my rubber off and everything and uh one was rich hansen and he's like hey randy good job and i'm like what are you doing here this is like one of the most experienced dudes at Team Four. Well, guess who else was there? Tommy Keith. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I think Rick Schneider was the other one. I, I, I might have that wrong, but there's three of their most experienced guys, and they left them behind because they disagreed with the way the op was planned. So Is that when you found all this out when you got back? Yeah. And then, uh, anyway, right after that, then that's when Kim, Commodore Sandoz comes running in. And he's like, there's been a firefight, Patia, there's four dead, nine wounded. And he's like, get your platoon ready, you're going. So I'm like, okay. So we lifted and shifted, got our age gear on, went out to the baseball field to get on a helo and head to Patia, you know. And we're just ready to go, right? Everything's ready. So we just went from combat swimmer kit to land warfare kit and went out there. But then Marty Strong's platoon was there and uh, – they went out, which made sense. They were actually deployed to Panama, and they had put them in isolation in Panama because they didn't want them letting it slip that this was all going to go on if they had told them ahead of time. I'm not – I can't say that that was the right decision. I don't think it was, but whatever. But anyway, Marty and them went out and didn't come back for three days. Man, they were out there for a long time. So, But for us, we had all their follow-on ops and everything like that, but – it didn't really didn't really matter, you know. That op went off exactly like it was supposed to. We had to make a few little decisions here and there about what to do, but it it was easier than the training dives that we did. Do you, you know? with all of the advancements in dive gear, do you think that there's what are the benefits of the new stuff and what are what's holding us back? I don't think it's the equipment, right? I'm sure they're still diving a a mod of LAR five. But they're clipping it into body armor. From what I understand, I could be completely wrong. But when I was out there a year and a half ago, they were clipping their rigs into body armor. So what's the plan? Are you combat swimming or are you going to? So, again, I'm not active duty. But if I was, Naval Special Warfare would maintain its capability to do the combat swimmer attack. And then maybe if we did, we'd do more of them when the need came. You know, it's my belief that special forces are the scalpel, right? In other words, collateral damage is a, a huge problem. I personally can't say that, hey, this guy, we're going to get this one dude, but we're going to shoot a missile in there, drop a bomb in there, kill 30, let's just call them non-combatants, to get the one dude, when, why aren't you sending in him and his boys? Because that's what they signed up for. They signed up to train that hard, to go do that, and it's like, tell you what, I'm not going to go get them at the wedding. I'll get them going to the wedding. I'll get them coming back from the wedding, but we'll get them. And instead of this, let's yeah. shoot things from far away and kill, you know, non That's what pisses everybody off when we do that. Well, not only is it not if you send it us in to do it personally, for whatever reason, they don't get wrapped around the axle. But if you shoot them from a, with a drone or from, from, from with a missile far off, man, that pisses everybody off. 
Well, it pisses me off, right, to see that, because it's like, why do you have special forces then? Why do you have SEALs if you're not going to use them to do these hard ops? Will guys die? Yeah. But they signed up for that, right? It says it in the brochure. They, they put their name on that line. And we talk about it from the day the guy shows up at Bud's and, and the right leadership says, hey, you know, we're going to go, we're going to do this, we're going to have a plan, but we may not come back. All of us, none of us, whatever. There has to be that kind of mentality in your head, and you need to be, you need to be okay with that. Right. That this could be the end of your life. And you need to be good with it. And you need to have your ducks in a row when it comes to your family and everybody else. But when you leave home, that could happen. And the guys that can't handle that should go. And the rest of them should fact, stay. We're banking on the fact that it shows up. Most team guys. So if they are exactly. using body armor in dive gear now, was there ever an incident where no. someone was killed or they just decided to add it? That's, that's what he's saying. It's I don't know. To, he didn't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. And I'm sure some team guy will listen to this and he'll come up with some great reason why it's, it's good. And you know what? I'm irrelevant because I am not active duty. Right? I am no longer in charge of anything. I don't work at Warcom as a GS, and so I make zero decisions. All I have is my personal opinion on, on what should happen. But we have a lot of special forces between Army SF, Rangers, SEALs, the Air Force. You know, we have a lot of special forces. And as a, as a guy that's running the show, you want to get somebody, and we, Naval Special Warfare specifically, has demonstrated our capability to go snatch somebody. And we should go do that. We shouldn't be shooting missiles into weddings. It's always a wedding, right? But we shouldn't, we shouldn't risk that. Why, why don't we have dolly yield weapons? Every weapon should be dolly yield. So I got these dudes in a vehicle. I should be able to drop 125-pound, you know, bomb, let's call it, but only have a five-pound yield. Why don't I have that, you know? Why aren't we spending our money on that? That would make sense to me, right? There could be a situation where you got a, a mortar position or a missile and it's shooting into a civilian community or whatever and it's killing a lot of civilians and that missile just happens to be around their civilians. So there may be a call there that has to be made mm -hmm. that would justify it. But for the most part, SEALs and all the other special forces dudes, they sign up for that mission. They should be used for that specific purpose all the time. And the other stuff should be a, a desperate, you know, backup. But that's my opinion. And we should test our guys. And, you know, the, the, I think the risk-averse environment that we're in with all this, you got to have body armor, you got to have this, you got to have that. It makes sense for, for, let's say, urban warfare. Makes sense. For everything else, you're going to crawl through the jungles of South America with body armor on? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But our leadership is saying, no, we're going to do that because we don't want the people back, you know, back there to think that we're not, we don't have the best interests of our soldiers and sailors in mind when I think the, it's the opposite. And that's why I'm not popular and I'll probably never be invited to talk on another one of these again because I don't agree with the way they're doing things. I don't get it. You know, a SEAL should be, I did a recon in Panama and I took my car 15 four magazines, a grenade, and a life jacket and fence. That was it. And a red flashlight. And I'm not saying that I'm right, but guess what? It worked out perfect. 
and I was light. I could move. I could swim. I, I wasn't planning on getting in a firefight with my diet, my swim buddy and us, you know, going against the, the whole Panamanian Defense Forces. It was fighting. Not really looking for a gunfight in the water. No, you know, so it was, we needed to find out what was there, and they had all these, why don't you guys dress up in phone company uniforms and take a phone company truck and drive down there? I'm like, yeah. So we got me, Chris Kenny, and TK Epley. That was the thing. All over six feet. All white. Because yeah, we don't look. Nobody speaks, yeah, exactly right. nobody speaks Spanish. Yeah, right. But we're going to get in their uniforms <laughs> and go out there. It was, it was for a specific purpose. Like a and I'm one. just looking at them. I'm like, how about this? In Buds, I learned how to do swimmer scout. And I go, let me take Todd Peters, who was an unbelievable swimmer, and an unbelievable shot with 40 Mike Mike, as well as any gun that you ever could put in this dude's hand. And I'm like, let me take Todd, and we'll swim in there and tell you, Everything that's out there. Swim scout. And Carly, Carly actually, he kicked me out of that meeting. He's like, shut up and get out. <laughs> and then like five minutes later, he's like, all right, get your stuff on. You're going to go swim. And midnight that night, I'm in totters, kick, stroke, and gliding. So That's a great op, man. Anyway, yeah. so sorry that took so long. But, no, it's an um, awesome, awesome story. The, I don't know. Like I said, I'm, I'm a bit different. When it comes to what I think, I think but it, for me, it's all about the guys. It's all about it's up to. I can't let a guy go from a block of training knowing that I didn't train him as hard as I could possibly train him. And once you're through, in my opinion, once you're through Hell Week, we are no longer trying to attract you, and we should not be trying to attract you. There should be no course in naval special warfare that has a high dropout rate. And I'm talking about after, especially after you get your trident. Well, they're there. You know, yeah. there should be none. Because what does that, like that what does that tell you, right? That tells you that some dude in his head was like, Well, I'm gonna make this so hard that nobody graduates because I'm I'm in charge. And it's like when I ran a JTEC where I took it really personal if somebody failed. I mean really personal. For me it was just like this <laughs> this should never happen. Every guy that comes up here should pass. And it's our job to work him as hard as we have to work him. To make sure he gets through, like you, it was that was the Poganip year, all the fog, and your mass chief was just like, dude, I need him called, and I'm like, I stayed there, and I'm like, just let him stay here, and I'll get him called, and I did, and we did, but that Who was, was your our master chief? that was our job. Nice. What about um, phase two? A lot of guys drop out then, or fail, I guess. You're talking about in dive phase and buzz, buzz, yeah. Pool comp is yes. it? Pool comp is a big one, you know, and it's uh, again. This is where the instructors don't need to make it harder than it already is. There's a list of things you do as an instructor. You start with this, whatever, pulling his mask off. Then you let him put it back on, clear it. Then you do this after X amount of laps or whatever. You have a little. You just go up and down a line in a specific spot. Instructors don't need to make that harder than it is. So when, when you see a class that has, say, 35 guys in it and 34 of them fail pool comp, that's a leadership issue, in my opinion. Mm. That is a failure of the leadership God, dude, to, in, to, us, to instruct their instructors to do pool comp correctly and to gauge their performance based on the event itself and what the checklist is mm -hmm. so if 34 guys out of 35 fail pool comp what's going on 
Right. That yeah. would be my question is the guy that ran the phase, I'd be like, I'd literally look at him and go, what did you guys do, instructors? Mm-hmm. Why did why was this so hard? Because there certainly isn't 34 stupid people <laughs> in this class. Yeah. Right? And but there, so it, that's just me. Some classes where they lose a lot of guys in pool comp. Oh yeah, just naturally. That's what he's saying. So there's a there's a percentage, and I know because I was a buzz instructor. There's a percentage that are going to go, and it's really not that high. But you can't let a guy have chance after chance after chance either. Even if he's a great guy, you mm-hmm. can't do that. So he has one shot, another shot, and that's it. Unless there's some weird thing that goes on, he may get a third, but that's rare. But all I'm saying is, is that I think the majority of classes are run exactly how they should be run. But when you have a class that has an abnormally high rate, like the class before me, had an abnormally high rate of rollbacks that failed pool comp. And it's just like... I had this one instructor. Dude. He was such a good comper. He instructed Batman. He would sink to the bottom of the pool. And when he'd land, <laughs> he'd land like Batman, his hands on his, hand, on his hips like this. And he could jump off the thing and somersault in the water and then land beside you. And you, you always knew when you had, when someone had him because one sleeve on your brown shirt would be gone. <laughs> he, he had it to where he could rip the complete sleeve off of your shirt. That's how you knew you had him. You couldn't see anything. And he would beat the shit. I mean, those guys. Pool comes hard, man. Oh, it is so hard. It is super difficult. It's terrifying. Because you're trying to stay underwater. And calm. You're trying and, to remain calm. And, it's kicking your ass And the water, they're dude. trying to do everything they can to force you to the surface. Surface. You know? It's terrifying. And so it's you have to literally be like, I have, an, I have enough breath. I can, I, can, I can work this problem. And if I run out, there's a procedure. If you run out of breath that you have to follow, you go down, kiss, right. kiss the bottom, and then start blowing, and you go. But even that's hard. Who comes when up you're, with this shit, man? Who even came up with that? That's that. That thing is awesome. Mark, though, talk about a just a freaking kick in the pants. But the calmer you are, if if a student is really calm, no matter what you do to him, grab that thing and put it in the back, and he calmly does his business. What do you, are you just going to keep going and make it harder and harder and harder? Because if he passes the one super hard part of that. Then what should you do? Hit the surface, dude. Go. You're done. Dude, take the pass. Break, take the right? regulator hoses and wrap around your throat. So the I in, mean, just instructor staff has man. to be guided by the senior enlisted and the phaso. Yeah, because seals want to kill those students. Yeah. That's a natural <laughs> a phenomenon. I think the instructors like natural seals. Whenever they, my they want, instructors instructor, would man. get out of hand, and it happened, and I would go across, I'd walk across the grinder and get their record. And then I'd bring them in, quiet time, and I'd sit them down with their Ooh, record. That's pretty hardcore. And I'd be like, from Budge, you mean? Yep. Oh, I'd be like, nice. here is your record. <laughs> that's hardcore. Here's your performance when you were in Buds. Do we need to make this particular event harder on these guys, or do you think you want to just let them do the event and pass or fail? Well, yeah, I guess I could do that. So it's it's all about you know reality freaking you know guys that's so buds does awesome. not need to be harder than it is it's harder yeah, we than got instructors are getting a fight with their girlfriend come in try to kill students just, <laughs> just to freaking vent some frustration oh guys and you can tell who they were saturday come on saturdays come in saturdays students out ass, and it's just like i had one instructor that did that and i had another instructor Fazo, come in and pointing fingers at me and everything and we went toe to toe and it's just like you were right for doing what you were doing, but what you should have done was call me and I would take care of it. 
I'll take care of it now. And that instructor never got next to another student his, the rest of his time there. I couldn't get rid of him. Wasn't enough to pull his trident, but because it wasn't a CO-related performance issue, but I wouldn't let him ever deal with students again, you know, which hurts our, the rest of our instructors because now we're a man down, mm -hmm. you know. And we ended up having one more dude that we did that to. But he was, he was bad news, and he ended up leaving Buds and got an order somewhere else. But, you know, it's tough. But somebody has to, you know, like I said, man, Buds is hard enough. Hey, we got some non-social guys. <laughs> I don't care if they're non-social. We got everything under the sun. As long as they're... community, man. As long, you're supposed to be teaching the student. Right. You're supposed facilitating, to be a new generation. It says instructor on your shirt, Facilitating the... <laughs> the actual events so that you can excel yeah. what happens when you hit 8 30 on the o course you get to do the commando slide on the slide for life right, right. instead of going underneath and so it's a big deal that's a real big deal and the instructors actually are they make it a big deal it's like hey man you were 829 let's go let's climb up and get on commando and we'll i remember you. when i hit that, that we'll teach deal. you how to do commando slide and they teach you how to do it and it's cool because now you can save a good minute, minute and a half. And you look cool doing it too. Plus you're cool. Yeah, you're cool. You know. It's important. But <laughs> so did we important. have students fall off and break their legs? Yeah. But you got to let them fall I, off hey, and break their legs. We I had this one kid named Dunn. He fell off of it from the top. So before they put the net under it, hit the sand, stood up, was out of breath. He was like, uh, you know, kind of walked off. And they were like, hey, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'll be all right. Ten students later, another kid fell off of it. Next day, we see him leaving Bud's. He had a kickstand broken arm thing and a leg, and his mom was there escorting him out of there. <laughs> I'm talking to the microphone. I know you were there. I'm, so I'm saying this is, dude, that was badass. You know, I'm, I hope but what you remember do, that. But what do we do? Let's put a net under the slide for life, right? Yeah. What does that do? That takes away all of the fear that you need to have to perform under pressure. Yeah. Takes it all away because now it's kind of like, well, if I fall, no big deal. Yeah. But before you're 40 feet up and you fall, you're breaking something. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, well, that's harsh, isn't it? And it's like, no, that's reality of war. You want a warfare, you want a warfare operator that can handle immense pressure, then that's how they have to be trained. Not this kinder, mm -hmm. gentler, let's put it, let's put a safety net everywhere. No, I don't want a seal like that. I want a seal that that I was thrilled when I had a bunch of seals that were not loudmouths, but that were proud and were, uh, they had a lot of bravado and hubris, but it was for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thrilled to be around a group of guys like that. And that was that platoon, hotel platoon. We started out as Alpha, switched to hotel, but that was that platoon again. I was going to ask you, the H on the motor, that's what that's for. The hotel, H right? was hotel? the hotel platoon. That's yeah. what I thought. That's what I thought. So, but I remember when the guys got good enough, when you were allowed to flip up the the tower oh yeah 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 and then when instead you of see doing it, the instead of doing the yeah. normal thing and then when they could commando when you see a guy switch like that it, it, it's something when you watch when they can yeah, flip was, over those obstacles i was like not that. the best of course guy but i wasn't the worst i was kind of middle of the pack and i was Is that where you want to be that was a like, thrilling day for me to be able to go do commando slide yeah, it's, that it's was a really best. cool day i know we talked last time i was here about helo cast recovery and all that good stuff but that was a cool day mm. doing commando slide but victories, man. There has to be there has to be a level of, you know, finality to whatever you're doing. There has to be, you know, if I don't do this correctly, things are not going to work out so well. Right, for me. a consequence. And yeah. if and if they don't, then if you get somebody used to that kind of mentality, 
what do you build? You build a huge amount of belief. Mm-hmm. And the more belief you build in the guy, the better he is at what he does. Oh, sure. You know? So speaking of, with your book, we are going to list it on Team Never Quit so oh, people can go on to our website and buy your book. And um, and you're going to sign them, right? I will sign You're signing them, yeah. So if you want the book, just go on teamneverquit.com. Um, and you've got yeah. a couple of other businesses too, the old 18. Yeah, the old 18 outfitters, all the fishing rods. Um, yeah. Old18.com. All the fishermen go there. Old 18. Old18.com. Old 18. Yeah. Best rods on the market. Best rods on the market. They, yeah. they strong. And you're coming on with fly fishing rods. They strong. I'm hoping December or September, October. I'm going to need a couple of those. Well, thanks again for coming on here, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I think this is great.